Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded, Recorded live. live. Hello, everybody. Are you there? Yes, hello. Hi, this Greg, is Greg. Greg. In the last one. Hi, this is William. I'm just listening. This is whom? William Gray at gmail.com. Miss Williams. Um, this is a private call. Is it not for guests? Not, um, is text there? No, there is no guests on this show. This is, a private private con- <laughs> this is a private conference call. Yeah, I know, but she, she just emailed me. And who is this? My email is boyewura at gmail.com, Miss Williams. Um, no, we didn't email you on this. Where did I get a number from? I have no idea. I got it from my email. Text was the one who emailed me, that's all. Okay. All right. Thank mm-hmm. you. Who's in Georgia? Greg in Atlanta. Greg in Atlanta. Yes, sir. And where did you come from? I have an email with the number and the ID and the scheduled time to call in. And I was just following the email from Texas. Oh, from Tex. Yes, sir. Oh. Well, this is not supposed to be an open call. This is a private conference call. Yes, and that's what he said, that you could be a guest and dial the particular numbers. And it was a private, it is a private meeting group is what it says. This is, this is a private meeting, and no, nobody who is not a participant of the call is supposed to be on this call. Okay. Um, is this, is this is just a question, sir. Oh, I'm, no, we're going to have to ask you to hang up, sir. Okay, I'll do just that, sir. Thank you. Otherwise, Thank you. otherwise I'll just reschedule another call. Um, who's in Georgia there? Hello? Yeah. Okay, who's in central Alabama and who is southern California? Southern California is me, and I think I caused a big mess. This is Tex. Yes, Tex. There was nobody on this supposed to be on this call except for the guests. I know. And I just uh I accidentally sent that out. I sent out a correction 
So I'm hoping that most people got it. Um, apologize about that. How many people called off of my list? Um, I just had two or three people hang up. Somebody's on here hanging on from central Alabama. Okay. I sent out an email after it saying that, no, don't call in. There's no call. This is a private call. Um, Uh, Tags? Tags? Yes. Hello? I apologize. I just got the email. Okay. Uh, All right, then. Okay. I'm sorry. Bye-bye. Yeah, sorry about that. All right. Well, God, we don't know how much this might I'm turn into a yeah, it might turn into a thing. And I'm hoping in five minutes or so that the uh, the emails weren't too far apart. So I'm hoping that within five minutes or so, some people are probably just getting the email trickling in that there's no call. Right. You're supposed to tell them about tomorrow's call. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I don't want to send that too close, though, then I'll be confusing it even more. So. All right. Um, somebody from Illinois is going to show up here in a second. Hello, Illinois. Who are you? Hi, my name is Scott. Scott. And Scott, are you? Scott, hang up. <laughs> Scott, you're from thctrust.org? Yes, 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 yes. Hang up. Uh, did, you not, did you get the uh, update email that there's no call? No, I did not. Okay. There's a, a follow-up email that came out. That, yeah, there, this is a private Okay, call. so I just I'll listen to the recording tomorrow? Yeah, it'll, it'll, yeah. Okay, so there's nobody going to be on this call then, right? No. Hang up. Please. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. And now we have Arizona. Who are you, please? I, I mean, yeah, I think I messed this up, Greg. I sincerely apologize. I don't know. They're probably not going to stop. But they're still calling in. Arizona, who are you? Arizona, please say who you are. And who's there from North and West Colorado? Al Murray. Dax, you want to tell him? Oh, yeah, you're from THC Trust? Well, I've been on THC Trust, yes, many times. No, yeah, this is a a private call. You got uh, one email. You didn't get the second email, but this is not a public call. I'm sorry. That was my mistake. So please hang up. If anybody is on this call from thctrust.org, please hang up. Um, you should have got another email that said that this is a private call and it will be aired at the appropriate time. Okay. Uh, Greg, you didn't send me an email on this particular uh, call. You weren't supposed to get one. Oh, okay. This is a private call. I messed that up. <laughs> okay. I'll hang up. Listen tomorrow. Okay, well, oh, my goodness.
Is it still a lot coming in, or are they filtering out? Um, I don't know. One, two. Well, that was eight of them. If you're on here from thctrust.org, well, hopefully, like I say, hopefully they'll filter out because the other window. And you know, here's you on here. Yeah. Here comes another Southern California call. Hello, who is that, please? Hi, this is Corey. Oh, you're supposed, you're supposed to be there. Okay. Hi, Corey. Um, oh, yeah. We're just dealing with a, a little bit of a faux pas. Um, Tex, why don't you explain to Corey what happened? Yeah, I, I actually sent out a text uh, uh, email on my email list, um, and, and, and it shouldn't went out, so... I sent out two emails, so some people are going to be calling in from my email list if they didn't get the message that this is a private call. So, hope, in other words, in other words, instead of telling everybody to to tune into the call tomorrow, he told them about this private call. Oh, cool! So we're sitting here peeling everybody off of the onion to oh to get rid of them. No <clears throat> bummer. Okay. And this might go on all night long. So why don't you just include them? No, because no. <laughs> it's not the format. Got it. Okay. Hey, it's Bob Locke. If anybody is on here, once again, from thctrust.org, this is a private call, and you shouldn't be on here. Uh, so check your email. There's another email that went out. Yes, I'm just saying if you inadvertently got an email to be on here from THC Trust, you shouldn't be on here. So no, um, no, I got, I got it from Gallon Goose. I'm sorry. I, no, I, no, I must, yeah, this is for other people. Oh, who is this? This is Bob. Locke. Oh, hi, Bob. Okay, you belong. There's three. <laughs> And somebody keeps calling my cell phone from New York, and I'm not answering it because I'm on headphones. <laughs> I have no idea who the hell that is. Probably Donald Trump. Once he has media devices. Um, yeah, don't you know want to be vice president? There you go. He's going to choose Ron Paul. I like I like all those guys, you know. Just I like people that actually talk about substantive matters and not about hyperbole. But uh, that's just my opinion. Right. All right. Well, we got three of us hanging out here, and we'll just hang out until the rest of the crew kind of wanders in. All right. This is getting nuts. I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to hear who the hell's calling me. Be right back. Hello. Hello. Greetings. Hi, it's Ken Dost. Hey, Ken Bob Locke, how are you? Hey, Bob, how's it going? Good, good. We're just kind of in the in the uh, 
anteroom gathering here. Ah, okay, okay. How you doing? Good, good. Greg just went off to uh, answer a call on his cell phone from somebody who he thinks is trying to get on the call. Oh, okay, okay. How's your week going? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I put in a. Uh, I got my uh, um, extension request in uh, for uh, third extension, uh, and, and they should grant it because uh, 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 HSBC got three extensions. Yeah. There you go. Okay. This is Greg. I'm back. Text. That was one of the people calling me on my cell phone. Yeah. From the email you sent out, so now, now everybody also has my cell phone. All right. Yeah, I apologize. They won't be calling you forever, though. No, don't count on it. <laughs> no, they, no, they won't. They won't call you after. Uh, they won't call you after the next fifteen minutes. I, I know my crowd pretty well, but I expect I apologize about that. Hey, Greg. Can right. you came up while you were off? Hey, Greg. Pardon me. Hi, Ken. Um. There from North Georgia. Hello, North Georgia. Who are you? What's the area called? No, we don't get that. It just says in Georgia. If you're on here from North Georgia from thctrust.org, please hang up. If you're not supposed to be on here. Still here? Yeah, they're yeah they're still there. Um, Bob, is that you? What's that? Hello, Bob, Northwest Illinois. Is that you? Probably. Did you just call in? Oh no, no. No, I've got a Northwest Illinois here. Oh, then that's probably Kurt. Hello, Kurt. Is that you? All right, who is on there from Northwest Illinois? Hang on a second. Hello, Dr. Graves. Oh, for heaven's sakes, that shouldn't be the case at all. Um... No, it's seven two four 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 seven two four 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 seven four four four. And that and yep. Yeah, and uh we're trying to kick some other people off the call that were not supposed to be there too. Um so yeah, the and then the call ID is one two, three three four all right. All right, thanks. Bye. Uh, this is Greg. I'm back. Um, that was Dr. Graves stuck in the middle of a Spanish phone call. I don't know. You misdialed by one digit. Um, who is North Georgia and who is Northwest Illinois on this call, please? 
You must identify yourself, please. Well, obviously they're not, which means they Can don't you belong. Can say what your number is? Because the number might have came in through a different uh, number. Copy no. Well, how no, many people have on the call, Greg? Um, pardon well, you got, me? You got, well, you got mine is Oregon, right? So you got Oregon up. Right. I've got, okay. I've okay. got Tex, and I've got um, Corey, and I've got Bob, and I've got um, Ken. And then I've got two unknown people, and now I think I just got uh, Dr. Graves just came in. That is correct. And now there's another caller coming in from New York. Um, Dr. Graves, uh, one of our guests uh, made an error in distributing our information to his mailing list. Oh, no. And we... And we have been dealing with this at the beginning of this call before we begin as he's trying to advise them to hang up and go away. This is a private call. Okay, my my apologies. Uh, I will hang up now. I'm on a, a, a text list, and I'm actually in mid-Georgia. I might be the only one. My apologies, I, I hang up. You know, Georgia's a pretty big state. So. Just go ahead and hang up, my friend. Just hang I, I up should. so we can get it moving. Anybody else I, from thctrust.org, just hang up. You don't even have to I say sure it. Gotcha. All right, and we still have the mystery caller from Northwest Illinois that will not hang up. Did you cut him off? That would be really wonderful to see if I can figure that out. I'm looking at all of the controls on my little board here, and I don't see one that works. Um, I, I can block that, I can mute all, um, and I can end the whole call. Um, and so... It does not look like TalkShoe is giving me the ability to just kick somebody off. I can mute them so that they can't oh, say anything. Mute, mute him and we'll go on. Alrighty. Okay, so I'm trying to make a little list here so I know where everybody is. You're doing great, Greg. Hang in there. Uh, thanks. Um, who said that? Dr. Graves. Okay, thank you. Um, alrighty. So I've got one Southern California, which would be Tex. That's correct. All right. I'm just going to try to put little numbers here so I can keep track of this. The second one would be Corey. Corey, have you heard from George? He was going to be in a little bit later, right? Yeah, he's uh, still at the uh, doctor. Okay. I'm glad he's doing better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey. Hey. Illinois, Bob, is that you? I'm here. Bob? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, that's Dr. Bob. Okay, you're number three on the list. 
And then four would be Ken. Yep, I'm here. In Oregon. And five would be Central Florida. That would be Dr. Graves. And then somebody from New York and Texas just called in. Hello, New York and Texas. Who are you, please? My name is yeah, if you're on here for thctrust.org, please hang up. Yeah. Yeah, just hang up because this was a that was a mistake. You weren't supposed to get that. It's a private oh. call. So, oh. Yeah. Any, anybody else from THC Trust, just hang up. Uh, just hang up. Sorry. Do those calls with me? New York, you're still on the call. New York, who are you, please? Greetings. This is Maggie. Maggie, are you from TACTrust.org? No, I am not. You're not invited to... You got the email from thctrust.org, correct? No, I did not. Then how did you find out about this call? I have this number as Gordon Thomas's number. Is this not Gordon Thomas's number? No, I think you got the call from thctrust.org email, which was a mistake. You're not supposed to be on this call. It's a private call. I'm sorry. I think you received an email from us. Okay, so if I received an email from you, you said from us. Yes, thctrust.org. It's a mistake. Um, can, can, you please, can you please hang up? Um, you, can you, yes, this is a private call. Okay. All right. Good luck with your endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And Northwest Illinois still will not hang up. All right. Whoever the heck they are. Hello. Northwest, hello, Northwest Illinois. Who are you? It's Kurt. Kurt, there you are. Okay, thank goodness. You kept Kurt, how you, the hell are you? Do you want me to hang up? <laughs> <laughs> Depends. Are you going to cause trouble? I, I, everywhere I go, every chance I get. <laughs> My kind of guy, all right. <laughs> anyway, I'm here, so. So, Illinois is three, actually. Okay. And so then that becomes four, and then that becomes five, and five becomes six, and so George will be seven, I guess, when he calls in. And uh, we're still missing Lou and Kimberly and Josh. So I guess we should just get going and uh, see where this takes us. Uh Fortunately, through the power of editing, we'll be able to piece this together into some kind of a cohesive whole. <laughs> um, seriously. But um, 
you know, I'm pretty much amazed that we got a half a dozen of our previous guests that have been kind enough and willing enough to participate. And I just want to tell you all, thank you so much for giving this your effort. Um, we're not going to have the recorded intros and breaks and stuff like that like we normally do on the program because this is just going for content, and then we'll format it to sound like a regular show um, by tomorrow. Um, the general subject matter of our of our show is the state of consumer and foreclosure defense in America today, as I hope you all had read. And um, we had had a short list of possible topics. Um, the first thing that I want to do as a courtesy, given the different time zones that we're all in, and uh, knowing some of the circumstances from which you are calling, um, if anybody would like to go early and uh, bug out early because of where you're located and uh, time commitments, uh, please say so now. Dr. Fred, I'm thinking you might be one of those because <laughs> you're out east. Well, it's a quarter till seven. If we're not on more than an hour, I'll be good. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so the uh, the general topic is um, we have homeowners and consumers, you know, and and students all over America that are dealing with uh, litigation or bill collectors and things like that, chasing them down to uh, attack them on the basis of alleged agreements that have a lot of presumptions in them. And they may or may not be true. And they may or may not be the proper parties. And they may or may not be um, acting with proper standing in a court case. And... Uh, so we've been watching over the past eight years since the debacle of 2008 um, where uh, a sea change has been taking place within America where people are waking up and studying and learning the law, studying and learning the details of their contracts, not just taking other people's words for it anymore, and digging in and finding out that you know, they might owe somebody something somewhere, but it might not be the guy across the table. And so in this whole process of trying to find out who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third, for us older guys, <laughs> um, there's a lot of issues that have been happening. Um, tonight with us, uh have... Uh, Tex Masson, we have uh, Corey Goldstein, we have uh, Kurt Kellenbach, we have Dr. Robert Locke, we have Dr. Fred Grace, we have uh, Mr. Ken Dost, um, who have all been guests on our show prior to today, who have been kind enough to join us for this first effort at a roundtable meeting to discuss this issue of where are we going with this subject of consumer homeowner defense? Um, 
one of the things I personally think is important is framing so framing the entire conversation so that all the parties, the attorneys and the homeowners or the students are on the same page. And Dr. Graves, I actually would like to have you start talking about the importance of being an educated citizen and how to help yourself or your lawyer better the odds of you winning your case, if you don't mind. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity, uh, and thank you for all the hard work that you do, Greg. Um, I don't know where to begin except to say that it's a shame that my profession has either purposefully or negligently refused at any time in the history of the world, and I mean at least 6,000 years, to make any effort whatsoever to teach anybody anything about litigation, uh, how cases are settled, uh, how disputes are resolved, uh, other than to teach members of their own tribe. Uh, we do not have public legal education in this country. That's why I created the jurisdiction area in the How to Win in Court dot com course. But, but the fact that I think is so exciting, actually, Craig and you other fellows, is that let me just give you one one example. In 1970. If I wanted to fight a case, I had to go to the law library. I had to start pulling down books off the shelves. I'd probably start off statutes annotated and then go look at some cases and so forth. I, I hope you can hear me because there's sound keeps coming back into me, but whatever. It uh, sounds okay. Uh, okay, good. Uh, and, and it was very tedious. And it was something that if you didn't have any idea what you were doing, then you probably were wasting your time. Today, I can go turn on my computer, and within, within moments, I can have access to statutes. I can have access to uh, published appellate court opinions. I can have access to the rules of procedure and the rules of evidence and the rules of judicial administration and so forth for any state in the United States. I can even get those for Canada and Australia and New Zealand and England and all over the world. It's there. It was never available before to the average man or woman, whatever. And it is now. Uh, the key that I think, the thing that I work for so hard, and, and I hope some of you other fellows are doing the same thing, is, okay, so now we have the ability to get the law. We have the ability to find the rules. We have the ability to look up uh, cases and uh, to do all of this. How does it all fit together? And, and I think that's where the real problem is. Uh, people do not understand what due process is. They do not understand the power that they have. I, I always tell people I say you have a three fifty seven Magnum pistol in your back pocket. You don't even know you have it. Uh, you have interrogatories. You have requests for production. You have requests for admission. 
you have the ability to take them at the proper time. Not, not many, many times lawyers take depositions right away, which is a key to let you know that you're paying your lawyer too much and you need to fire him and get somebody else. But you, but you have this power, and it belongs to each and every one of us. It belongs to every man, woman, and child in this country. My profession, I, I, I hate to apologize for the profession, but I do. Uh, my profession doesn't make any effort to let the public understand the power each of them has. So when you when you do have a case of foreclosure or where you have a, a case where they claim that you owe so much money for a credit card or, or somebody decides that uh, you didn't pay your homeowner's dues and now they're trying to put a lien on your home and you're trying to sell the house and the homeowner's association has a lien and all these different things, you don't have to go get a lawyer. You don't have to put up $20,000 retainer to have some lawyer steal your money from you by doing little as possible. But you do have to understand how to get evidence into the record with your five discovery tools. You have to understand how to draft proper pleadings, whether you're a defendant or a plaintiff. And if you're a defendant, you have to understand what affirmative defenses are. You have to understand that. You have to understand that affirmative defenses have to be filed at the time of filing the answer. You have to understand any cross-claims or counter-claims or third-party claims have to be filed at the time of filing the answer. And then you also need to know that you may not have to file the answer at all if you understand the three motions that can get rid of filing the answer, the motion to dismiss, the motion to strike, and the motion for more definite statement. Now, Greg, in, in four or five minutes there, I, I have really given you all that people need to understand, and yet none of it is taught. None of it is told. It's a shame on earth, but it, it is. It's a fact. When we know how to force the other person to produce documents to to show that he has uh, the mortgage and the note or or a document showing a legal transfer of interest in the negotiable instrument, for example, when we know how to do that we don't we don't have to be rocket scientists we don't have to know differential calculus. All we have to know is how to do something very, very simple, for example, request to produce or an interrogatory and okay. or a request for admission. And, and, and this is what I want people to understand is that these very, very simple things are amazingly easy to learn. And it's kind of up to people like you, Greg, and me and the rest of the fellows to get the word out to people. Uh, there are various theories, of course, as to defenses and foreclosure and so forth and so on. But knowing how to use your due process tools to get the evidence into the record is is key to all of this. And that is the information and the education, as you say. Uh, in, in my opinion, that's what I want people to understand. The rule of law means nothing to anyone who doesn't understand how to use his due process tools and weapons. Is that good? 
Um, that's helpful. Uh, I'm going to take a short uh, interlude here because there's somebody here on the call from West Maryland. Uh, hello, West Maryland. Who are you? Hello. Who is this? Uh, this is Tex. I was just chiming in saying if you are if you got an email from thctrust.org, whoever's on, from Maryland and you shouldn't be on here, uh, please just uh, disconnect because you weren't supposed to get that email. All right. So thank you, West Maryland. Uh, and uh, thank you for hanging up, please. <laughs> All right. Gosh, my cell phone. How many text messages? Goodness gracious. Oh, goodness. All right. <clears throat> Some of our other guests are text messaging me. Oh, there's another one. Evidently, uh, uh, we need to uh, – oh, goodness. If you guys could just give me a break. You know what? Actually, I'm going to mute my mic, and I'll, if anybody would like to respond to Dr. Graves' statement, go ahead. And in the meantime, I've got a couple of our other guests that I have to uh, – let them know that they're calling in on the wrong number. So I'm going to mute out, and please uh, um, have a nice exchange. I'll follow along on the headphones. Yeah. Well, Doctor, this is Corey Goldstein. Uh, I'm in San Diego. And, hi, Corey. Uh, hi, sir. And hello, uh, other uh, guests. And uh, we have, I think, something, what you were sharing was really powerful. I, I had no idea that such a, a set of tools was available for non-attorneys. And, uh, and you know, I have uh, the, the people that I work with are always looking for solutions and they want to do things themselves. And, boy, I would absolutely love to be able to uh, provide a resource uh, your website uh, for them, and uh, and you know people are just so sick and tired of getting screwed. They're just tired of getting played all the time. And uh, you know, it's the guy, it's the guy with the bigger pockets and the bigger staying power is going to probably win. No, and, and that's how it's been. I know. That's cha- we're changing that. Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge what you've done. I can't wait to see your stuff. Yeah, and Doctor, this is Bob, this is Bob Locke. I I feel exactly the same way. To me, um, to me, the the most valuable client when I was practicing always was the most educated client, and and I I encountered a lot of them, and it took them years of self study to put together an understanding of the courts and procedure and the different motions and and things that were out there. And, and they, you know, they were very, very 
strongly minded that it was their case and they wanted to direct where things went and you know they understood my importance in the relationship and these people did it without a set of tools like you've created so um, I don't have a website right now. It's it's in development, but um, once once that thing is brought up, I definitely would like to talk to you about putting an affiliate link on there so that uh, I can steer people off to your materials. Because the more people know this stuff, that's where you're gonna you're gonna get changes in the courts. Because right now the courts are just they're just rubber stampers. They've got so many cases sitting on their dockets and so much pressure from the bureaucracy above to clear their dockets, whether it's a credit card collection case or a foreclosure case, they need to get these things cleared off. And um, having, people, having people with this knowledge will start to stem that tide and, and really expose to me, um, to them, you know, the problems in this whole collection industry. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, this is Greg. I hopefully uh, got text messages out to the folks that, just like you, Dr. Graves, had uh, evidently when I had sent out a text message or something earlier, no, I was no. off. I had put a wrong digit in there, and everybody else was saying they were ending up on a Spanish phone call. So... <laughs> Um, okay. It's been it's been a little bit of an interesting evening so far. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, let's see. Ken. Yes, sir. A lot of a lot of attorneys are not familiar with some of the discoveries that you've made with respect to. Who, what, when, where, why, and how securitization has come into play with respect to what is traditionally observed to be a mortgage loan. And I'm going to probably combine this to something you said on, on the last program that you were on, where you were saying, was it a mortgage loan or was it a rental? Which was it? And you talked about the truth behind 327s, 525s, and other arms. Um, for the folks that are not familiar with that, um, would you share a little bit about that, please? Uh, uh, hello, and thanks for having me on, first of all, and hello to everyone else that's on the phone. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Um, <clears throat> I, the, the arm loans that we're talking about are the interest-only loans, the, uh, um, the three-year uh, interest only that rolls over and resets to a 27-year adjustable rate, and, and the same applies for the 228s and the, and the 525s and the 426s. Um, <clears throat> my background is architecture. I spent 25 years in the business of architecture, and uh, I my business uh, uh, my business went under, and my personal financial situation uh, tanked a year prior to the actual general collapse of the economy when. Uh, the Fed and the banks decided to uh, withdraw the credit from the design and construction industry, which wiped out the whole, the whole, wiped out the whole sector instantly. I lost my business in a week, uh, and all my peers lost their businesses. I had projects that shut down in midstream. 
so I was I was in I was in dire straits at that point in time, and what I had done was I I I, I went the opposite direction that everybody else was gone. Um, I, I had done a uh, um, uh, my wife at one point in time at the Jeep Chuck and. Why don't you design some uh, uh, dog houses that are kind of architecturally pleasing and kind of uh, put together uh, simply and are, 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 are something different? So I, I did that. I designed it, and I, I applied for a patent on it. And at some point in time uh, uh, after the collapse, after my collapse, I had come across the terms to inure to the benefit, and, and that, that term struck with me. And uh, uh, I thought, where did I, where did I see this before? And I realized that it was in the patent application I had made. So I started looking into patents. And lo and behold, what I found out, and it's been, I've been doing this for eight years, uh, and I, I discovered that what they have done is they have intentionally designed uh, to perfection, engineered a system of patent processes that is ingrained uh, into uh, uh, the court system, into our state agencies, into our federal departments, into all the banks, uh, into financial services, into insurances, so on and so forth. And what I found and what I've, just, what I've uncovered is that, this, that what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with processes that we're not aware of. We're dealing of, uh, of systems that, uh, uh, that were intent on trapping borrowers into transactions that they know that they could not afford and we were not designed to be able to afford. Uh, that is to say, uh, these, uh, um, these mortgage loans themselves the documents that we signed, this is all patented processes down to a precise science. And what they've done is when we sit down at, mortgage, at, the, at the closing table, uh, there's this little enigma, and I think it's an enigma, uh, named Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, Inc. And what I found with uh, uh, tracking all of this, all these technologies down is that, is that MERS, the acronym, is actually, first of all, three different uh, uh, entities. Uh, but more importantly, uh, MERS corresponds to a trademark that's registered with the United States Patent and Trademarks Office. Underlying that is an, a security credit agreement between Nations Bank, which is Bank of America, and Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, Inc., uh, this, the same Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, Inc., that jumps out of the four corners of the Fannie and Freddie standard uniform instrument, which is supposed to be an impervious agreement, uh, impervious in terms of, uh, uh, of four corners. It was designed as such. Um, it was commissioned as such by Tricky Dick Nixon uh, back in the 70s to uh, design a standard form mortgage agreement that eliminates all hidden terms and small fine print, and so that was easily understood by everybody. And uh, uh, that contained covenants, both uh, uh, non-uniform and uniform, to uh, uh, give clear understanding to everybody who signed that agreement. And that's how it was, and it was published, I believe, in 1975. Well, then you had uh, 1994 came along, you had this uh, insertion by Freddie and Fannie of uh, MERS into these agreements. And we have, we've put a lot of attention over the past eight years to mortgage electronic registration systems. A lot of people have said, well, MERS owes the county all millions in recording fees. No, they don't. They don't own the county. They don't owe the county anything. Because what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with not a real property transaction. We're dealing with something entirely different. We're dealing with uh, a transaction that is a, a registered trademark uh, that is uh, 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 privatized, essentially. And when 
and in my studies of the patents and, and intellectual properties and uh, the revisions to UCC uh, uh, Article 9, and also uh, more pivotally, more pivotally and more importantly, is uh, um, a 1998 ruling between State Street and Signature Financial Group, which the court ruled that business processes, that is to say these algorithmic processes and all these uh, 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 patent processes uh, for loan origination, for credit analysis, for risk management, all these processes, even down to the court system, even to the administrative processes that are being pushed to the court system, are all patentable. Um, and that's what kicked us off. So from my perspective, what we're seeing and what we're dealing with here is we've got to get on the same page and we've got to properly identify what the transaction actually is. It is not a mortgage loan. It is a sales leaseback transaction. So when a borrower puts their signature upon the Fannie and Freddie standard uniform instrument, what we are in effect doing uh, as a result of the MERS Circle R registered trademark underlying Nations Bank uh, MERS agreement is we are agreeing to act as an exclusive, we're giving, we're giving exclusive licensing rights to our legal fiction, to our identity, uh, to our signature, and allowing them to create all these derivative instruments. Now, how does that play into what we're dealing with? Well, it plays into it plays in very nicely because what we're what they've set up here is they set up a system where there is no thing as a present day transaction. And what I mean by that is when you're at the closing table, you believe that you were approved for a mortgage loan, uh, um, but you actually weren't. What they've done, and this is in case in all transactions, is everything is kicked down the road to a future repurchase. So. What we actually signed, and this can be shown by patented processes, even by the Oregon Bar. The Oregon Bar has put out a manual uh, this past year that describes these contracts for what they are. They are not residential mortgage loans. They are commercial mortgage loans that are actually construction agreements. And, and, and this is the case because what we signed was we signed a lease agreement to a future repurchase. And that future repurchase is, uh, is an annuity. So put yourself back in 2005 when, when the economy was booming, and all of a sudden in September of uh, uh, 2005, all of a sudden they dropped the standards, and they did everything underneath the guise of a stated income loan. or I'm sorry, stated income uh, application. Well, the implications of that obviously were huge because what they, what they in effect were doing was they were taking a stated income application and then coming back after the fact and saying that, oh, the borrower's defaulted, and, and, and Joe, the plumber here, is showing he's making $200,000 a year. Oh, he committed fraud. Uh, so all of a sudden now, behind the scenes, administratively, what you have is you have these brokers and these bankers that are collecting all these insurance policies on, a, on an application from Joe, the plumber, who supposedly lied in his loan application, which really he didn't. He may have he may have padded his income a little bit, but the point of the matter is there were automated systems, patented systems in place that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac said that that borrowers do not have to. We don't have to go through this uh, this uh, uh, um, uh, verification documentation process anymore because we've got automated systems in place that will be able to verify the borrower's information, his, his income, his tax records, everything off of that loan application. And it failed. And what we saw was everybody, uh, of course, the economy collapsed because of that. So what happened, what, what happened is 
the, they, they, they established a system to where they set up borrowers for foreclosure. Why? Because at the end of the foreclosure, at the end of the uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, court case, when we go into court and the judge administratively uh, is uh, settling our, uh, uh, an estate, a self-settled estate, he's essentially deeming us as financially incapable and therefore civilly dead. And okay, and that's where I'm cutting you off, Ken, because you're not listening to the ding. Uh, you're running, you ran over. Uh, we need to let other folks get on the call and uh, respond to your statements. Uh, this is not this is not like a regular show this where we take turns. So you're going to have to hold back. I know you got a lot of stuff to share, but you have to keep it kind of in a pocket so people can have a meaningful conversation back and forth with you, okay? So just limit your subjects to shorter things, please. Otherwise, it's just going to be a lecture, and that's what this is about. This is a roundtable, okay? All right, I've unmuted you, so now you can respond to questions. But in the meantime, someone called in from South Carolina. Who are you, South Carolina? Yes. Hello? Uh, Tex, could you talk to South Carolina, please? Yes, whoever you are from South Carolina, I'm pretty sure you got an email from thctrust.org. That was my mistake. Uh, so please hang up because you shouldn't be on this call. It's a private call, and after it's edited, you will receive it. So please hang up, if you will. And that's for anybody from thctrust.org. Okay. Okay. Okay, well, going back to that, um, uh, Dr. Graves, uh, Dr. Locke, do you have any uh, questions from the perspective of counsel? with respect to how those kinds of recoveries or or comments could be used actually for homeowners. Well, one of the things that, this is Bob Locke, Greg, one of the things that I've been talking with Ken about and um, <clears throat> trying to put my head around is how to, from a practical perspective, uh, develop affirmative defenses and discovery questions and uh, you know, assorted other, assorted other um, tools uh, or weapons that we might use with that information. And the biggest problem, and this is, you know, this is true. I think just as a general matter, is that <clears throat> Ken's Ken's research is absolutely fascinating, and I think that he's dead on. It's, it, but it's a, it's this huge Gordian knot of all these different interrelationships uh, dealing that are, that are, that are formed together through these different patents and, um, you know, a, a very deliberate set of invisible or semi-visible contracts that you have to go through in order to figure out in terms of an individual um, foreclosure case, exactly how it impacts you on a, on a surface level. Obviously you're using the Fannie Freddie, uniform contract and so <clears throat> that's your starting point and I think that you can you can jump up and make the courts aware very quickly that hey you know what you think you're dealing with a standard uh, residential mortgage contract when in fact because of the systems that were used here that in fact they turn this into a very different 
kind of agreement and it doesn't fit into your rubber stamp foreclosure paradigm. But, you know, the, the courts are going to look at that and, you know, first they're going to be shocked and then they're going to, I mean, it's going to, it's going to go through, you know, that whole dialectic, the Schumpeter dialectic, right? First they're going to look at it and they're going to, they're going to look at you like you're nuts and then they're going to, you're, you're challenging their, um, their presumptions. And so they're going to intellectually violently oppose it. And then eventually, as this information gets distilled down into an elevator pitch, then you're going to have them look at it and go, well, of course, that was what was going on. And, you know, shame on these people. But we're, in my mind, we're a ways away from there. Although I know Ken is working furiously, and I've been working furiously through the materials that he sent me to try and get it to that point. And I think that it's going to be a game changer once we get to that point. Um, anybody else want to jump in on that? Oh, this is Corey. Uh, not being a an attorney, although working with a uh, a judge as I did uh, years ago uh, as a receiver and taking over and and managing a lot of the real estate owned properties for banks and then subsequently acquiring a lot of them. Quite frankly, um, yeah, I saw just a. Um, I, I love the this as an argument and uh, and. Um, the gentleman that just spoke, uh, I'm completely in agreement that this is a very big pill to swallow. And um, for a court system, given given the you know the rubber stamping mentality, uh, I, I'm interested to know, not being aware of any current court cases that are that are pending like this, if there's anything right now that is uh, in a court. Uh, that is currently being uh, looked at, is being litigated based on these uh, Freddie and Fannie documents. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is Ken. Um, I, I'm working with an attorney out of, uh, out of Texas, and he's working with uh, um, uh, Garnet, other attorneys who I've been educating this material on, and uh, there is a, a, a huge mass joinder that is in the works uh, that uh, we just got a, an investor for in Florida to back these lawsuits. And uh, hopefully within the next week or so, uh, we'll be making an announcement for this mass joinder, which will be multi-district. Uh, there are attorneys in Florida, uh, Tennessee, Connecticut, and uh, Texas currently interested in signing on board with this. Uh, and it will be. It won't go to the depths of, uh, that I went that I, that I was talking about uh, that level of depths of the past, but it'll go to the contract, and it'll go more specifically to MERS and the, uh, the trademark aspect. Okay. Um to do a quick uh, topic change here, um, Dr. Graves, would you like to address the idea of addressing the concept of whether to attack or defend and the difficulties that there are with being the plaintiff in terms of proving things up versus going in as a defendant in these cases where you then can try to force the plaintiff to prove things? Wow. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I think the the best defense is to attack. Uh, let's take the defense side first. Uh, in, in my 30 years, I have met 
I, I suppose I have never met a lawyer who understood that there are elements to affirmative defense. This is something that I came up with. I didn't invent it. It already existed, but it was never taught and it's never been used. Uh, for for example, just take an affirmative defense of, say, estoppel. Uh, estoppel has elements. There are certain things that I have to prove uh, to to win with my Fraud is an affirmative defense, or can be. Uh, and so there are certain elements to the affirmative defense, just as, switch over to the plaintiff's side, uh, the, the plaintiff has different counts, different causes of action, like breach of contract. There are certain elements of breach of contract, the existence of an enforceable contract, an act on the part of the defendant in breach of the contract, and number three, uh, the, the plaintiff suffered money damages. And in some cases, uh, there may be a fourth element with regard to whether or not the plaintiff made any effort to resolve the issue before taking it to court. But really, there, those elements need to be proven using discovery. But, but when you look at it on the defendant's side, most lawyers that I have met don't know mud from sand, uh, and, and I mean that. I mean that as pejoratively as I can possibly mean it. They don't know mud from sand. Uh, they, they wouldn't know which way to turn a bolt on a, on, on a vehicle. Or they wouldn't break the bolt off because they're just determined to do it their way. The fact is, though, that by using affirmative defenses... I now have an opportunity, if I can prove the elements of that affirmative defense, and each one has elements, then I win. I mean, I win. I just like to go back to the plaintiff's side again. The plaintiff says there's a breach of contract. Well, if he can prove the existence of the contract using discovery and that it's enforceable, and that he can prove the act of failure to act on the part of the defendant that was in breach of the contract, and if he can prove that he suffered money damages within the jurisdictional limit of the court, okay, if he can prove those three elements, he wins. Defendants, and it amazes me. Lawyers don't understand that affirmative defenses have elements and that if I prove one, any one of my affirmative defenses, I win. It's, 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 it's like the defendant becomes an aggressor, just as the plaintiff initially, he's an aggressor. But what we really have, it really should not be a, a defense we should both be on the aggression, if, 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 I'm, if I'm saying that correctly, I'm trying to. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go at this axe fight, both of us. The defendant's going to go at it with his affirmative defense and his discovery. The plaintiff is going to go at it with his causes of action and the elements of the causes and his discovery. 
and then the result is that the good guy wins. And I don't know if I asked you questions on the phone, Greg, but but that's the way I see it, and it comes down to such a simple thing. Uh, I'll just finish off by saying this: I, I have become firmly persuaded that even a nuclear reactor. Uh, or a nuclear submarine, or something really, really complicated from our lay position with regard to those types of things. Once we understand the fundamental element of what's actually going on, all of this complication goes away. All, all of this mystification disappears. And we see through it all, and we begin to realize, hey, this is really a very simple uh machine, it operates in a very simple manner, and once I know how to operate that machine, then I can get rid of this problem that I have and get on with my life. It breaks my heart when people call me and they say, you know, can you help me? I've been involved in a lawsuit for five years. (laughs) It just, it really does break my heart, because there's just no reason for a lawsuit to last for years and years and years, unless the lawyers are getting rich at the party's expense. Um, with regards to discovery and those possibilities, uh, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about the difficulties that some of you have experienced in some of your court cases <coughs> regarding the judge to agree to force the opposing party to produce documents um, amidst all of their excuses. And that happens a lot in foreclosure cases where trial court, chancery court judges are just basically rolling their eyes and going, oh, come on, damn it, you know you owe the money, just take care of it. And, And they're actually challenging on really important issues that should be discovered and should be proven, but, um, they have difficulties with stonewalling by their adversaries as well as the court not, uh, you know, having a presumption that uh, this is just, a, you know, a, a no-good son of a gun who's just trying to get out of a deal. And so maybe some of you guys could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is, this is this is Ken. I'd like to mention something, if I may, really quickly. Um, what I what I've learned about the courts, and, and and I think most people think that they're walking into a court, a judicial system, but actually what we're what, what we're finding out, what we're walking into, is we're walking into an administrative process where all of these uh, uh, documents that underlie the foreclosure are being done administratively, and all presumptions that otherwise might, would be rebuttable. Are, are, are done administratively. So when we're walking into these courts, we're walking in as, uh, as uh, um, uh, um, a loser to begin with because it's the court's business to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, give restitution to the plaintiffs who post their bills. And so the court's acting administratively. So how do you get around that? Well, I have some thoughts. <laughs> Go ahead. Was that a question? Yes, yeah. there was a question. So this is text, and um, that's that's kind of why I was listening in because you know I I take a different approach and I'm and I haven't uh you know I haven't you know I don't have any professional training haven't worked with any attorneys but I lost one house and I'm saving another one <laughs> so but uh but you know many people are familiar with my work I'm more you know that administrative side of the court that you're talking about 
from my research, that's really what people refer to as a private side, you know, private side, for lack of a better term. Right. And I, and I think that really one of the things that I would just say the consumer or, or the, the man or the individual, for lack of a better term, they should just be more, you know, we should all be for, more familiar with that administrative, you know, side of the court, just like how there's a, there's a, a corporate government and then the federal government, there's a there's a side of the court that deals with the policies and the parameters that just how it's governed and how it works. And I think that's that administrative side. It goes into a lot of different private types of studies, but, you know, somebody mentioned it earlier on the call. It's a lot of administration that it's a lot yeah. of things that have to take place before they can even begin doing that administration. And there's a lot of, and there's a lot of, now, let, let, you know, not to get off into, you know, all, you know, the matrix and all of that, but there is a certain presence and a certain type of administration. There, there is some, some of those affairs are things that we can dictate and that we can change, but uh, if we're not participating, it's almost like we're on, we're on the chessboard, but we're not sitting at the table in the chair playing the chess game. We're like playing from sitting on the board, like in the courtroom. And I think you have to have a presence in both. So not only do we have to do the things in the courtroom, learn about procedure, the, the causes of actions and the elements, we have to learn the inside of the courtroom procedure. But in order to keep the judges in place and the and the clerks in place and everyone who can throw their opinion in to prejudice what we're trying to do, then we have to learn about those administrative, what's going on on the administrative side. And that's all private. That's when you're getting into their insurance policies, oaths right. of office. And you and there's no anybody, anybody can get that information with some diligence. And I personally have seen on numerous, numerous occasions, so no one will personally convince me that, oh, that stuff doesn't work. Now, it doesn't work within itself, but when you mix it with the competency of what you're doing and then you just use that private side leverage and administrative procedure and all of that, and some things dealing with the status of your administrative estate, then you can kind of really use that private leverage to make sure that everything you're doing in the public goes out the way that it's supposed to be. And that's just, you know, that's, of course, without a whole lot of details of how to do it. But that's, that's I, I think we should put a lot more study on these insurance policies, uh, corporations, what they need. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things like, and, and another, one other thing I just wanted to mention real quick, too, you can look right now, the federal government, like I don't know if you guys know on the FBI's website, they, they are now posting links where they say you can report uh, attorneys or judges who have been abusing their authority and their, and their privilege. So there's a lot, of, you know, a lot of leverage in different things that you can use just to make sure that your positions aren't prejudiced based off of people's personal bias or other pressures that they're getting. So shifting the liability, and I'll, kinda, and I'll, and I'll cut it right there <laughs> that's really great Tex uh, and you know in a sense that's a great lead in um, with regards to the subject of status standing and jurisdiction in other words just who the hell is anybody anyway and where do they get off messing with me and I'd like to toss that ball over to Kurt if you're still with us and uh, have at it boy I, I almost feel like I shouldn't even be on this call <laughs> I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening to the details after details after details. And of course, I've been screaming that that's where the devil actually lives. Um, my, I, my whole thing is this: as far as the status and all that stuff, Greg. 
Hey, you know, you, we, you and I toyed with that idea way back on one of your shows, and 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 you kind of came to me and said, "What what if what if the defendant were able to disappear?" And I think that's really that's my biggest problem with all of this is that every case the outcome of a foreclosure is the loss of the house, the brick and mortar, the brick and mortar. The, the weird thing about that, that that situation to me is that when the when the sheriffs come up, they remove a living man or woman from the premises, and then the house becomes abandoned. No matter how hard these people were fighting to keep the house, the funniest thing happens is that the house is abandoned. And so the question is is, is being begged at this point to be asked, are they dealing with the brick and mortar or are they dealing with a character or a title to a character? Do they have a legal claim administratively over the brick-and-mortar home that we think you're fighting for, or do they have an administrative authority over a name that we believe is ours? Because when the name is removed from the brick-and-mortar, that's when the house, the brick-and-mortar, becomes available through abandonment. So my problem is, are they going after a title? Are they making a, uh, is the cause of action upon, or the claim upon the title, i.e. the person's name, or is the cause of action upon what we what appears to be real estate? I don't think it's on the house at all. I think it's on the title. I think it's on uh, uh, the property itself that they're claiming is, or the mortgage, the dead pledge, is, uh, is upon something entirely different than what we think it is. And, and, and that's where, I, I mean, obviously the status and standing and all that stuff comes in. And the gentleman that just spoke, I completely agree with the idea that the administrative process is only over a title, and I don't believe the title is to the house. I believe that title is to a legal fiction, and there, and that's the premise. That's the idea. Those are, those are the premises that they have a claim upon, not the actual physical construct, not the tangible home. So I think they remove the title, and then the home itself is abandoned. And, and so I, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. I think if you can if you can get a hold of or lay claim to your property, ultimately the name, and remove it from the public, then then the the defendant himself disappears from the case. And I'll and I'll give I'll say this and then I'm done. A friend of mine, Rich, was on a call a couple weeks back with Angela Stark and me. And the weirdest thing happened with Rich is that he used he used a a, a waiver that I created, but he used it with two other documents. Uh, one document was a removal of appearance, and the second document was um, a third party intervener. And then he put a waiver in after that. It's funny, but his case, the defendant disappeared all the way back, nunc pro to the beginning of the case, all the way back to 2006. The defendant disappeared from the case. The case disappeared from everything um, when he did this. I think if you can remove the defendant um, and, or your connection to that defendant, um, they have nothing. They have vapor. They have vapor, and they don't have any cause of action at that point. There's no claim, and I think the case has to disappear. That's amazing. Just an idea. Okay. Okay. You know, take turns. 
In, in other words, let me say this. I'll, I'll just say this. No cause, no claim, no case. Can, uh, can I interject something? This is Ken. Um, uh, what, I, what I found, and again, going back to patents again, what I found is, and you're right, what they're after is something other than the title. What they're after is they're after the person's living estate. Because what they have done here is they've created all these uh, uh, life-settled annuities that are attached to the legal fiction, which is attached to the, the living man, living woman, to their title and to their estate. So what they're doing in a foreclosure is they're taking the tenants in common and the tenants in, by the entirety, and they're cross-assigning cross, they're cross them so they cancel each other out. So when you say that uh, what you were talking about where everybody kind of scattered, they scattered because what they're after is they're not after simply the abandonment of property. They're after the abandonment of title so that they can attach all these living annuities. Uh, and, and, and as far as the, uh, the, the legal person, the live person is concerned, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're proving, they're hogging the court and they're saying that you're financially incapable. And as such, you're civilly dead. And that's, yes, you, then you get evicted from your house and then you get the abandonment of property. But the abandonment of property is not the real estate per se. That's the bonus. Uh, it's the underlying life settled annuities to the estate that they're after. Yeah, I call it Rain Man. Yeah, can I, yeah there you go. Can I, yeah. chime in on it? can I chime in on that for a second? This is Tech. And um, and I and I agree, and that's kind of why I was suggesting. I mean, to, you know, I, that's why I kind of suggested that, you know, th that it is something, as, as everybody said, there's something else that they're after. I also wanted to mention, this is just throwing it out there. This might help someone else. There is some form of indexing from the name to the legal description of the property, and it probably goes into the, the annuities. Um, you know, but there is some form of indexing, so that might have a lot to do with uh, um, actually what they're going after. But I was also going to just mention this. I was going to throw this out there, too. I have seen on a couple of occasions, and for obvious reasons, they, they are just a living estate. Um, but I have also I've seen where people have entered living trusts in particular foreclosure situations. I'm sorry, somebody's beeping on my phone. But I've seen people enter living trusts and it throws an entire wrench in the entire proceeding, and uh, and for obvious reasons because with the living trust you are divesting them of that administrative authority that they're that they're operating under by default. So that's just something to think about, um, and it kind of goes right into the direction of what everyone's talking about. Um, it, I think it's somewhere in the somewhere in the middle. You know, I think if if you know if someone is going to go into the public side and deal with it totally as a as a, a prosecutor, you know, or, or as a plaintiff or defendant, um, I think if you're doing that in addition to operating in the living trust, you're going to really be in some fire. You're going to have some firepower, especially if you're using the elements and the causes of action, and you're following some type of uh, methodology. So I think you can kind of combine both, believe it or not, if you're operating in trust, you know, dealing with your person, however you may do that, whatever kind of trust or whatever type of proper way to set your estate up that you think is proper, if you're giving, the pro if you're giving that notice of, the, of how the estate is operating, and then you can go in there, you know, doing what you know on the public side. I think that's the happy medium, especially for the people that's not advanced in one particular subject. You know, the people who's losing their house and have to do something. You know, you know, that 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 would be my thought. The problem with that though is it, it, the problem with that though is if you're already in foreclosure 
and you go and set yourself up a trust, then you're, then you're making fraudulent transfers. Well, let's not say that all the time, and I'll tell you why. We're talking about a living trust for one, and I've seen this done on a couple of occasions. So I don't know. If, I understand what you're saying, but I don't know if it changes the circumstances because we're talking about a living trust. Okay, so okay. We, Good point. You know, yeah. Well, gentlemen, gentlemen, right. that's really good. Now, I know, that, I know that Kurt and Tex and uh, and Ken have been working on a lot of these different new possible elements of information and possible causes of action and possible methods of doing something. I'm wondering, since we are privileged to have all of these good people here at the table, um, some of them, you know, Juris Doctors, who have had a lot of experience after listening to this, um, Dr. Graves or Dr. Locke, how could you imagine utilizing some of this new information that may these gentlemen... May, may I? I just, I just can't wait to say something if you'll let me. Please, jump in. Okay. Number one, when, when we go to law school, we, we, again, we, we learn things that every eighth grader ought to be taught. Number one, you never own the brick and mortar. It never belongs to you. It's never yours. You have title. If, if you if you have a piece of real property in the United States, any state that I know of, the possible exception of Louisiana, which may be different or not, but certainly in Ohio or Florida or Indiana or Illinois, you own a piece of property that you bought and you paid for, and nobody's repaired the roof that you didn't pay. No one has a lien. You do not own that brick and mortar. You hold title. Now, you hold two kinds of title. And and I, I think Dr. Locke will back, back me up on this. You hold legal title, and you hold what's called equitable title, or the use and benefit. Those two titles are merged. You have legal title, and then you have the equitable title, which is the use and benefit of the property. Now, you go to the you go to borrow money from the bank or the mortgage company to buy a house. You sign a piece of paper called a promissory note, by which you promise to pay whatever it is, so much interest and so forth and so on every such and such a day and so forth. And you you make that promise. It has nothing to do with the mortgage. It has nothing to do with the mortgage. But you also sign a mortgage in most states. And in many states, the name of that document is mortgage deed. Mortgage deed. And whether it says mortgage or whatever it says at the top, I don't care. But what it is, it is a deed. And what you do is you transfer legal title to the property to the bank. Now, you still have the equitable title, the use and benefit of the property, as long as you make good on the promise that you made in the promissory note. Now, I, I, I mean, 
Ken and you guys, and I appreciate everything that you're talking about, and I, I know you, you want to see a better world, and so do I. But when I, when I work with a client, uh, I'm not really trying to change the world. I, I don't ever carry signs on the streets. I deal with my client. And the client comes to me and he says, well, I made all the payments. I made all my payments. I did not store any dynamite in the basement, which would be a violation of the mortgage. I did not use the uh, premises to sell alcohol or as a boarding house. I, I met all the terms. Then I, I simply go about my discovery and my affirmative defenses and I go after these people that are saying that they are entitled to receive the entire title, including the use and benefit, which is what happens when the foreclosure occurs and goes through. The court has jurisdiction. You can call it administrative, fringe on the flag, whatever you want to call it. America is a corporation. I don't really care. All I know is that we've got a judge up there who can, who's got a bailiff with a gun and the handcuffs. And he's got a lot of power, and he's got a bunch of rules, and he has to be used to the way if you have a court reporter to make a record. Now, if you if you default on the, on the note, then the holder of the mortgage, underscore the holder of the mortgage, can foreclose the mortgage if he gets an order from the court foreclosing the mortgage, and now the bank has the right to the use and benefit. It's always had the legal title because you signed that away when you signed the mortgage. But people don't know that because we do not have legal education in this country. So would that be doing all I know how to do to, to try to legally educate people, but as long as we remain legally not educated, then we don't know these things and we go about it back it's like we back into the battle. Here, let me just let me get up here in the in the ring, I'll put on my gloves, I'll put in my mouthpiece and now I'll I'll just I'll back up to my opponent. Well, that's just not smart. If I get in the ring with an opponent and I've got my gloves, I got my mouthpiece in, I'm going to start hammering the guy on the other side, face to face, and I'm going to deal with it and get it over with and not try to change the world and argue about, you know, patents or trademarks, forgive me, Ken, but to me, in my mind, the way I deal with it when I'm helping a client, I don't get into all of that stuff. All I do is, is, is prove that the person who is suing my client has the right to, to sue if he does, and if he doesn't, I tell him to go pound sand. Yeah, and 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 I guess I'm kind of in the middle of all this stuff. This is Bob. Um, because over the last number of years, I've been exposed to a lot of, you know, what, what Greg and I, um, you know, and Kurt and I have called you know, conventional versus unconventional strategies in dealing with these different things. And I think that, I think that right now it's premature. I know as far as, as my own knowledge is concerned, it's premature to be going off and raising the patent issues. I think that you have, you're in danger of, unless you really know what you're doing and you really understand it, you're in danger of, of making some bad precedent out there. But I think that that's going to mature very quickly with the, with the minds that are working on that. As far as dealing with the status issues, there's no question in my mind with all the with all the different 
questions that have been raised as I as I reflect back on 26 years of litigation and watching courts do things that at at some points I thought the judges were just nuts they were arrogant at some point I just thought they were incompetent some cases I felt that they might be corrupt and I've really come around to the fact that we were talking right past each other because they're operating in a completely different system than the system that I was taught in law school. And there are intersections of those two systems, and those I became very comfortable with, and and, and it, it helped me to deal with things like discovery disputes and, and making a good record for appeal. Um, and I learned that in very, very complex litigation scenarios where I was doing things like fighting against uh, telecommunications and electric utilities for rate increases and things like that where we had to go into a you know 3,000 page um, long-run marginal cost study and go line by line item by item and tear apart their course cost studies and show where there were abuses where they were looking to get money that they didn't deserve and right. it and so I look at these things and I realized that it, it caused me to look more closely at some of the mortgage documents. So looking at the note, for example, why does it say, before you've ever signed the note, why does it say, for a loan that I have received, when you haven't received it yet? Why, you know, why does it say in the mortgage or in an assignment of mortgage that I am the grantor and, and the grantor, the way that it's structured in some of the assignments that I went back and looked at is structured more as grantor to a trust than it is necessarily grantor of an interest in the real estate. And and why is my position, if if my title in this that I am signing over is is one of fee simple, then why am I designated as a tenant? And all these things started to raise different issues in my mind, and that really led to some very, very fascinating discussions with Kurt where I realized, looking back at the real in-depth history of this country, that there's been a shell game going on here. And, 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 and for those of you, I don't know if you're familiar, if you've ever lived through a shell game, but I mean, I used to take the, I used to take the public transportation from the far north side of Chicago all the way down to the south side to go to, to, go to high school at St. Ignatius, and I'd end up on the bus on Roosevelt Road, and it was one of the most dangerous bus routes in the world, and there were always dice games, and there were people playing three-card Monty, and there were people playing hide the pee, and you had to sit there, and, and, and I saw people losing their money all day long on these things. Well, they played hide the pee with us, and, and our actual position in these cases I am absolutely convinced is extremely different than what I was taught in law school. And so to me, I think that what you do is you have to be extremely um, uh, fastidious in terms of applying the conventional um, strategies that to these foreclosure cases, demand discovery, you need to make a record, you need to have a, as you said, Dr. Graves, you need to have a court reporter at any hearing on any on any issue of import, because one of the things that the appellate courts rail about is, you know, two things: lack of an affidavit to counter the affidavit of the bank, and lack of a court reporter's transcript of hearings where um, matters at right. issue were raised. And and if you do that, and then you 
and and you educate yourself with respect to these other things, I think that at that point you're going to have you're going to have two things. You're going to have a an unconventional solution that can that that at the same time you're going to have a conventional solution that you can hand to the judge to hang their hat on. Right. Um, can I can I jump in here really quickly? Thank you. Uh, text. You give your announcement again. We've got four new visitors call, and I don't know yeah. where they are. Hey, listen. If, if you're on here from thctrust.org, please hang up the phone right now. Your number is seen, and this is supposed to be a private call. I did send out the the backup email that said that was a mistake. So please hang up. If you were, if you're not supposed to be on here, anyone from thctrust.org should not be on here. All right, thank you. Um, anyway, uh, Dr. Graves, uh, uh, what would you like to would you like to answer back to uh, Dr. Locke on that one? Well, I think what Dr. Locke said was was just excellent. You know, I treat the court as what it appears to be. And then I forced the court, the judge, okay, I forced the judge to be what he holds himself out to be. I, I forced the court to be what, what it appears to be, what the public thinks it is, and I don't really care what it is. All I care about is, and I control it, does my client deserve to win? And I won every case but one in 30 years. 30 years, lost one case. And uh, just a case I should never have taken. Uh, but the reality is, you know, does my client deserve to win? Does he have the law on his side? Does he have the facts on his side? And if he does, look out, everybody, because here comes Graves and his way of doing things. And I will have discovery, and I do have a court reporter, and I can tell all kinds of war stories to make you guys laugh, but we won't go into that because we don't have time for it. But I can tell you that I never, ever went to court without a court reporter. And I never, ever filed a single paper in court for a client alleging any fact that I did not have my client sign an affidavit swearing to so that I was protected. But I, I learned that very, very early on, before before I even began to practice. And so I make a record. Uh, I I don't have to appeal. I, I did appeal once and got a got an opinion in my favor for four days to get an opinion in my favor. I had a stupid judge who thought that he was going to protect the plaintiff from being deposed. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. But that was what that was about. So a mortgage is a mortgage is a mortgage. A note is a note is a note. You can believe it's whatever you want to believe it is, but if you go to court and treat it as it is and do things in a conventional way and you don't back into the fight, you go into the fight head first and you go with an axe and you have a court reporter and you make your record for appeal, the judge doesn't want to be appealed. And if you do lose, which is not likely, it's your right, then you're okay. But, you know, the fact is, if a person doesn't pay for his home that he purchases, he doesn't make good on the note, or he stores dynamite, or he runs a, a bordello out of his home, contrary to the mortgage, you know, then we end up with an understanding that maybe he's not the person who should win, you know. 
but, but that's another issue altogether. But, but what I can tell you this, in 30 years, I have found it very, very easy to win cases. I remember one case, just, just one quick story. Uh, the, the, the people started out, they had one lawyer. Then they had two lawyers. Then they had three lawyers. Then they hired a lawyer emeritus, a person for whom the, the bar had banquets in his honor. But when it was all over, I won. Now listen to me, not because I'm so smart. That has nothing to do with it. It really doesn't have anything to do with being smart. It has to do with understanding that, you know, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, certain things are the way they are, and if you do things as... as uh, Dr. Locke said, in the conventional way, things go well. If you want to go in there and start these arguments about, you know, that, that I'm a living man and I'm a son of God and, uh, you know, you don't have jurisdiction and all that other stuff, that's fine. Go for it. But, it's, but you're shooting yourself in the foot, in my opinion, because you have tools and weapons you, that we teach at our website, howtowingincourt.com. You've got... Request for production, request for admissions, interrogatories, depositions, and subpoenas. If you and, and you get court reporters and, and summary judgment motions uh, or, or motions for judgment on the pleadings, and you've got all this in your favor, why not use it? Why go off and try to well, change well, the world or reinvent the reinvent the wheel when you've got this method of doing things that's been working very well for me for 30 years? Uh, no, uh, but that, um, but this is Ken, uh, if I may interject. Um, I, I think it's fantastic that, that, that you've uh, found success in the courts. Uh, there's, there's many, many others who ha have had attorneys that have gone to court and have lost. Uh, yes. Because the, court, the courts aren't listening. The, courts, the court is charged with uh, uh, expediting uh, and disposing of the debt uh, and give restitution to the plaintiffs who post their bills. And you have to go to the under, and, and I don't mean any disrespect, but you have to go to the underlying aspects of what uh, is going on here. As far as this is, a, this is not a traditional mortgage in any sense of the word. This is a whole different system of uh, uh, of, uh, of lending that is more financing and, and leasing than anything else. And you've got uh, interested parties that have uh, lured people into loans uh, that uh, they they couldn't afford. And who have lost their house, not only lost their houses, but lost everything else along with it. This is a whole different, in my estimation, in my study. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not trained in the legal field. I'm, I'm, I'm trained in architecture, and I'm trained in processes, and I'm trained in, in models, and how models operate, and how they function, and how buildings are built, and how they're structured. And uh, what I see, in my knowledge, is that we've got a system that is totally corrupted here. And it's corrupted uh, in the court system administratively uh, and judicially. And uh, we've got a whole system of, uh, 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 that was intended to uh, uh, lure people into uh, default. And we're going beyond the mortgage issues here. We're dealing with something entirely different. Well, Ken, Greg? one of the most important, Ken, this is Greg. And uh, I want to just say, uh, you guys are actually talking the same talk. You're just coming at it from opposite sides of the Dr. room, Greg, and you're Greg. both trying to get, you're both trying to get to the dining room table here. So, what I Greg. can say is, Greg. I can just draw this up to black letter law, four corners of a contract. Ken, you're saying that there are elements that were deceptive within the contract, and yes. Dr. Graves and Dr. Locke are saying 
if you can bring those elements and those facts to the court case and show the world that the parties that signed the contract did not fulfill their duties. And you can find out that the first party that flinched on their duties was the alleged lender because they were not a lender, they lent nothing, and they acted as a broker pretending to be a lender. Right, and right. And if right. you can show that, and if you can show that they conducted other elements with late arrivers, uh, arrival par- parties to the contract who were never disclosed to the homeowner, and that, that the deal was actually between the homeowner and an undisclosed party negotiated by the person who was named as a lender, now you've got something that you can go on. But you need Greg. discovery to do that. You need to get the facts. Greg, can exactly. I jump in here? Greg? Go ahead. Um, is, it, is, it my, is, is it true that fraud vitiates a contract? Is, fraud misrepresentation, is, is, is uh, misrepresentation fraud? Well, yes, the fraud... I no no, no. I, 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 yes, I want really is. simple I want really simple answers here. Is it okay, is. is misrepresentation fraud? Yes it is. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. I'm not stopping you from talking. I'm just right. asking you right. to stop playing a lawnmower over each other's heads. Uh Kurt's okay. asking Kurt Can they finish my statement? Thank you. There was a question. There was a question, wasn't there? Please, Kurt. The contract. It has to go to the heart of the contract. If the fraud goes to the heart of the contract, then the answer is yes. It, it, are unilateral contracts valid? I don't even know what a you know, I can't even imagine what a unilateral contract would be. Uh, one, one person, one person signs. No. Okay. No. I just want to. I want to finish this thought before anybody jumps in. Um, years ago, uh, I, my wife and I sat, and, and no disrespect to anybody, but we sat in an attorney's office, two living people, and the only the funny thing was is there was a kind of a strange conversion that must have happened while we were sitting there, because I asked her point blank if she could actually take our case. She said she could. The funny thing is, is three years later, when nothing has moved forward, um, I finally asked her to provide me with the oath that the Illinois General Assembly requires everybody practicing on the soil of Illinois to provide. And so when I asked the attorney to provide me with the oath that's required in Illinois, not the District of Columbia, not the bar card, I'm talking about the one that Illinois requires. She could not provide me one, and she quit on the spot and offered me <laughs> the money back, the money back, $6,000, because she knew oh, she misrepresented her position to a living man and woman. So no disrespect, but the whole damn system is initiated. It's actually conventional by conventional means using a conventional title that emanates from the Hague Convention. It's a different system entirely, and there's no reality to this at all. So I don't want to go into an unreal situation that is stacked against me from the beginning. Yep. Right. That's my position, and I'm, I'm ashamed of people that will stand up and say that this is a valid contract when it isn't. It's- 
Can I say something oh. great? Uh, please go ahead. This is Tex, and I just wanted to chime in. You know, the, the, and the, I just wanted to make uh, two statements. One is um, just my talking about my personal experience. Um, I agree some sentiments. One thing is, every time I found myself in any type of court dealing with a mortgage situation, I didn't want to be there. I knew in my heart that this is fraud taking place, and I was only going under there under duress and coercion every time. So I, I have to agree with him entirely on that point. But one thing I do, one, one thing I want to say is, and I hope we're all in agree, agreement on this. Maybe we're not. If not, we can challenge the position point for point. There never was any loan. There was never anything given of value. Never happened. So whether we choose to fight it publicly or privately, there never was a loan in the first place. And we can can follow. I I want to just say that I disagree with that statement because you're making it. uh, And I want to tell you. Okay. Well, we go point for point. Given there was absolutely value given. Well, there was but value was, given. No, there was value given. I'm sorry, I misspoke. If I said there was value given for sure, there was value given. But it was not the type of value that was written into the contract, and it was not provided by the party named on the contract. That's the point. All right. Right. So I've made this metaphor 16 times already, and got a lot of women angry with me for saying it. But it's no different than if you sign a marriage contract with the with your fiance, and then you get your marriage ceremony done, and you get your marriage license done if you want, and then you go and have your evening of consummation, and you wake up in the morning and find out that her sister is in your bed. <laughs> right, but, but and the point, says, but the point of the matter is, it was. She, but she says, "But honey, I just promised you that I would stay faithful to you, and I wouldn't cheat on you, and I would make sure that you had sex." And you know, and and it's just it's a substitution that is not lawful. Greg, mm-hmm. please, uh, skip and wait here for me here. And, and okay, go ahead. All right. right. Number one, a, a note is not a contract. It's well, I actually wasn't finished speaking, but that's cool. Uh, no, please. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. So yeah, the point I was making is that you know, uh, so, yeah, so you're you're exactly, you're exactly right. Uh, um, the value, you know, the, you know, the value that was given, you know, the, the value was issued from the estate. So there was, there, were, there never was no proper loan. But the only thing that has ever worked for me, being in court, and and I'm no guru by far, and I am familiar with many of the strategies, even the professional ones that's prevented, presented on this call, and I have used several of them more than anybody on this call would probably know. But the only thing that has ever worked for me personally in the court is dealing with the actual truth, is which is you never gave me a loan in the first place. And I know that there's other things that do work, but, but as intelligent as I am, I've tried many systems, and there's always seemed to be a way of it. Or... Um, Tex, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Graves is trying to say something, and uh, his call is not as loud as yours. So right, the, but I was speaking first. I had I said I had two points, but that's fine. I'll use the floor. All right. So, Dr. Graves, would you please finish up? All right. Earlier, someone asked a question whether fraud initiates the contract, and I said that the fraud has to go to the heart of the contract. But when we're talking about a promissory note, and Dr. Locke would back me up on this, I believe, 
The promissory note is not a contract. It's a negotiable instrument. And a mortgage is a deed. It deeds away the legal title to the property. Okay, you can call it a contract if you want to, but a contract is a meeting of the minds. It involves two or more individuals, uh, whether corporate or otherwise. And and so, so I appreciate all that you and I know you want to get to the bottom of it, but, but the thing that, that I want to emphasize before I have to sign off here is that the key to all of it is good pleadings, whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant, Good pleadings that allege all the necessary facts that have to be proven to win, and then good discovery, powerful discovery, to get at it, and motions to compel, and motions to show cause, and motions for contempt, if that's what it takes to get the discovery, and, and the willingness and the, and, the, and the knowledge to know how to go up on appeal and and get the appellate court to order the stupid trial judge to do what he's supposed to do. And again, I'm ashamed of my profession. What the man said about the lawyer that he went to being crooked, that is so true. It is absolutely true. It happens all the time. I had one professor say it's a license to steal. That's a shame, but it is. And on one more story, my grandfather told me one time when I was just a young boy, he talked about these two farmers, and they got into an argument. And my grandfather said, you know, they both hired a lawyer. They And, and the result was that the lawyers ended up owning both the farms. Well, I'm not proud of that, but I, I think that if we're going to change the world, gentlemen, if we're going to change the world, we need to start out dealing with the world as it is. Deal with the court as it is. You've got your tools and weapons. You've got your five discovery tools. When you understand what the elements are that have to be proven to win, and you prove those facts elements, and you make a record, and if the judge goes against you then, then you hopefully will prevail on appeal because hopefully there will be three people that will be better people, kinder people, more honest people, people who give a damn. And may I just leave with one more thought before I hang up. I had two buddies went, that I grew up with that, had, that went overseas. One came back in a box. The other one came back in a wheelchair. And when I go to court, that's, a how, that's the attitude that I have toward the judge. And I urge every, each and every one of you, when you go to court and when you're trying to get your discovery and you're trying to get proper answers to the interrogatories instead of listening to that stupid objection, overbroad, vague, ambiguous, seeks to inquire to the attorney-client privilege and work product and all these objections that come out like a boilerplate. And when you go up against this, you don't you ever, ever, ever forget. My friend Bill... He came home in a box. And my friend Dick, who's in, who has no way, don't forget those fellows. And, and force the judge to do what he's supposed to do and have a court reporter. And when the judge doesn't do what he's supposed to do, take him up on appeal. Yeah. Can I jump in, Greg? Bob? Yeah. Um there's some there's a lot of really really good stuff that was just raised in that last interplay and to me it's the it really is i think that what we're talking about is the future of of courtroom practice it's the future of the law 
I think that um, that Ken is 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 pursuing the future on the conventional side, and I think that Kurt is pursuing it on the unconventional side. I think Dr. Graves is absolutely correct that the way that this stuff is 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 structured there are valuable tools out there that people don't use enough but at the same time i think about anecdotes that i came across in my practice where for example a client came to me and they had already been defaulted in a in a foreclosure case so uh, true to local practice i went in and i filed an appearance i filed a motion um, to vacate the default, and I had a, an answer and affirmative defenses prepared. I walked in, and the normal judge wasn't sitting in the courtroom, and instead there was this incredibly arrogant um, prick of a judge. Um, and I won't say his name, even though you know I don't care if he if he were to hear it. But um, he he was sitting in in place of the judge that was normally in this courtroom, and so I told him why I was there. And he didn't have a choice as to allowing me to vacate the uh, the default because it was with, within 30 days. So he knew he couldn't stop me there. But he, sua sponte, said, yes, you know, he looked at me arrogantly and said, well, do you have your answer? And I said, yes, I've got answer and affirmative defenses prepared to file right here. Let me see them. And he goes in, and I was challenging standing. It was it was actually one of these 327 loans that, uh, that Ken has talked about. And... He said, "He said, uh, well, I'm going to grant you uh, your motion to vacate. I'm going to grant your uh, leave to file the answer, and I am striking the affirmative defenses with prejudice. And so this, the problem that I see, Dr. Graves, is you've got these judges who have these little fiefdoms, and they've got their own rules, and they, they're daring you to appeal because they know that 90% of the people that are there in foreclosure don't have the financial resources to appeal. And, and, and so they can, be, they can be arrogant about that. Now, I want to segue real quick back to Kurt. You know, Kurt, I, I, it was interesting because I had talked to somebody else about the same issue of the oath, and then I went back and I looked at my license. And in the bottom part of it, um, pursuant, to the, pursuant to the Illinois Attorneys Act or whatever it is, um, says that you know I, I met the I met the, the criteria and that I have duly taken the oath to support the Constitution of the United States and the state and also the oath of office prescribed by law um, right. and 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 because I, I scratched my head and I thought other than the time when I was sitting in Airy Crown Arena. Um, at McCormick Place with 1,200 other freshly minted lawyers. I, I, and, you know, we all stood up on command and we raised our right hands and we recited the oath to, you know, to support the Constitution, defend and support the Constitution of, of the United States and the state of Illinois. Um, but I never got a, a paper uh, copy of that. And I was actually, they didn't hey, have my... Bob, Bob, real quick, yeah. Bob, real quick. Uh, uh, the the, the uh, 705 Illinois General Assembly said very specifically a subscribed oath. Subscribed. In other words, a tangible, physical, written-down agreement, and not a single attorney in Illinois can produce one. No, of course not. But you can have an oral subscription. Well, Wisconsin talks about a substantial oath, which is also physical. So uh, yeah. it's all the same stuff, and nobody can produce one. That's a problem for me. Oh, well, I, 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 have, I don't disagree I have, with you. Oh, I don't well, disagree with you, Kurt. 
Bob, let me just jump in, and then I'm going to get off, okay? Sure. All right? Okay. Whether whether what's being argued here or not, you know, I, I actually took my oath in front of one particular judge that I really liked. I went to his office. I raised my hand. I put my hand on the Bible. And at the end of the oath, I said, so help me, God. That's the way I put it. But I took the oath. But here's the thing. You guys want to fight these ways. You want to fight any way but, but learn the rules. You go for it. If you don't want to learn the rules and you don't want to learn how to do discovery and you don't want to learn how to appeal and you don't want to do all that, go for it. But the bottom line is it's a whole lot easier to win in court if you just do it the way it's set out to be done. But the problem is the other side is not following the rules. The other side. I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn about the other side. I make them follow the rules. By the way, Dr. Graves, I bought your program. I know how it works, and I'm not interested in actually living a lie. That's my problem. That's my problem. Okay, well, whatever. Whatever. It works. I can tell you that. It works. I've done it over and over again, and won over and over and over and over and over again. I understand. I understand it. I did it. Gentlemen, take a breath. Uh, Dr. Graves has already told us that he's going to have to leave here after this comment because if you don't know this already, he's on vacation and in a camper <laughs> in Michigan right now. And, you know, he has to get moving. So, Thanks for joining us, Dr. Graves. Appreciate the discussion. Love the passion. So let's, uh, let us thank Dr. Graves for his time and his wonderful contributions and his great insights. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Gray. All right. All right. Just remember, remember when you pick pick up that pistol, be sure you're looking at it from the right end. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. So, Greg, let me just let me just finish your thought. But hold on, no, I need to do a, a a technical timeout here. And during our conversation, Tex, we have. Folks on the call from Florida, Southeast Wisconsin, South California, Western Maryland, North and West Colorado. I think you okay. can. Please listen. Listen, Hold if you're on the call from thctrust.org, especially if you got the second email that I sent out, it's very disingenuous because I sent both emails today less than an hour apart saying that it was an error. Do not get on the call. It's a private call. So you're embarrassing me already. I already messed up. But now every one of you guys that call in, i got to be ashamed and embarrassed for it. So if you're on here for THCTrust.org, please disconnect yourself right now. Don't even say sorry. Just disconnect yourself. It's my fault. But just disconnect. Thank you. (laughs) So uh, there's also a possibility that George might be here. Um, uh, George, is this you? No. Hello, George. Is this you? Hello? Oh, I guess not. Anyway, if George, if you are on the call and you're one of the other California callers, stay on the line. Everybody else, please hang up. All right? You're not going to get a copy of this call. You're not going to have any record of it. And uh, we will deny that it ever occurred. So just go away. Thank you. 
I have no independent recollection of that call center. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't recall. I can't recall. All right. Anyway, so I mean, so, I mean and, and Tex, we appreciate your efforts to try to make it right, and we don't want to rub your nose in it. But uh, thank you for. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe. Can, can, can I can I can I respond um, to Dr. Gray's both points he was making? Okay, go ahead. I think that I, I, he may very well be correct, but I think the, world, the real world that we live in is 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 entirely different than than uh, um, and no disrespect to uh, Dr. Gray's, but is entirely different than what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people that are going into court that, that are mostly pro se, and even the ones that are not, that are going in with attorneys, are not getting anywhere because of the way that the underlying system and the underlying uh, methods which they've adopted since 1998. Uh, we're looking at administrative processes where we do not have the right to uh, rebut the presumptions that are being played against us, and when we walk into court, we're automatically deemed as guilty, and that's it. And I agree with Bob. Uh, what they're doing is they're pushing along their docket, and this is an easy way to do it. All right. Yeah. Now, I'm going to use this as a change of topic break. Um, earlier today, um, um, Dr. Bob James, who is an expert in the UCC and the application in helping homeowners fight uh, foreclosures, um, unfortunately had just come back off the road from another one of his MCLE trips uh, had to go to a uh, family function at the time of this call, but um, I have a four-minute snippet that I'm going to uh, share with you of what he wanted to tell you. So if everybody can just pipe down and uh, listen, I hope that this is audible. You know, I don't think California. Yeah, the you know the, the decision was really uh, it was a decision about whether people have standing to challenge assignments and such. But the importance of that case is not that. The importance is the first part of that decision where they discuss the the basic principles of foreclosure law in California. And part one of the from the Supreme Court of California says that. The note controls not anything that's in an assignment in the recorded documents in the land records, and that nobody has the right to foreclose unless they have the right to enforce the note for the UCC. So, I mean, that you know, the other stuff's sort of nice, but uh, for the Supreme Court to get to its decision, they had to look at the foundation of what foreclosure law is, and it's basically debt enforcement. So that's that's part of the newest thing that I think happened. But that's not controlling in any other state except California, right? That's right. Well, I get the feeling that uh, they, we're going to get to a point where they can run, but they can't hide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's probably a good way to put it. will eventually, but the one thing that was seemed really peculiar in that California case, but even Nova, was that they they said that they only had the right to go after them after they had been foreclosed on and not beforehand. Well, that's the that's the basic California law. California for a long, long time through their non-judicial uh, process, they take the position that nobody has the right to even go to court to ask whether the people doing the foreclosure have the right to or not. That's been, California's been atrocious. 
have been a violation of constitutional rights forever. But anyway, this, the Chivanova case did not support that. Chivanova said, we're not addressing that right now, but that's, this is the first time that the state's even gone to the trouble of analyzing what the real policy is of foreclosure law. The other challenges to these corrupt approaches by California in the last 10 years, but I think they're all open for uh, hearings now. But even though it does not address them, it had a very narrow agenda. It's just that it had to state what the law was for them to answer that one limited question. So most people look at the result and they don't look at the foundational information that was put on the table by the Supreme Court of California. But anyway, I think there's a lot of opportunity in California. Uh, which, so, but anyway, that's, uh, that's the nearest thing I've seen of any consequence out of any state. Other uh, than that, the states continue to follow the UCC if somebody brings it up again. <laughs> Even in, uh, I had a case in Illinois just last week, and they, the judge, uh, even wrote for the bench that the whether a person has their name on the assignment or not is not even important. It's just the UCC and do they have the right to enforce the vote. That was in Illinois. Can you say a published decision yet? I'm talking to an attorney in Chicago, the foreclosure case, and that's what happened last week when he was arguing against the motion for summary judgment. But anyway, it's a uh, Still the same old, same old. People don't raise the UCC and don't know how to, to wind it into the uh, the law of their state. Uh, they usually can't use it. And in California, that you know, if it's virtually impossible to get through it directly. That's the reason that I published the paper about using quiet title in California because it's a different body of law. The bad California law was under their non-judicial foreclosure. That's a separate statutory scheme for quiet title. So in, and in some states, uh, first of all, they have to do something like that. They have to take a, a, instead of fighting head-on a body of law that is adverse, they have to find a, a way to sidestep a little bit. So you understand he's closing it up and saying when you're dealing with a a state that has a body of law which is adverse to the Constitution and to the people, you have to find ways around it. And he's talking about uh, a case here in Illinois that hasn't even been posted yet that he's working on helping a, a fellow over here with and mentioning the fact that uh, he believes that California's um, foreclosure laws have been unconstitutional since they were written. Any comments about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the, from the first time that I walked into one of these foreclosure cases and, and understand that my background from before that was, was defending consumers in, in credit card collection cases, which were absolutely aberrant in my mind. Um, you know, when, when, when Dr. Graves talks about how, you know, ashamed he is of, of, of the profession, um, you know, it's these kind of cases that that make me absolutely understand um, people's distrust of the legal profession, and makes it really hard for people that really you know they're working in the profession, trying to do things right, trying to make the system work right. Um, it's really hard when you come up against 
what you know are, are just blatantly um, illegal and, 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 and unjust and immoral circumstances. And let me give you an example. There's a judge who, now this guy went to the, he was a few years behind me, but he went to St. Ignatius, right? You know, good Jesuit product. And he was the chief judge for foreclosures in Cook County. And now um, this guy ends up getting elevated to the Illinois Appellate Court. All right. And one of the things that stuck out in my mind about the guy is he actually made the statement to me that requests for admissions of fact, which are one of the most powerful discovery tools that I've used in cases for my entire career, right? They don't apply in foreclosures. So if I'm sitting there and I want to propound requests for admissions of fact, challenging things like the, the issues that Ken raises or challenging issues of status like Kurt's talking about, challenging, you know, challenging issues that, that, that taxes raise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the key tools that discovery tools that, that Dr. Graves talks about in his program. Well, this guy's telling me just based upon his own feeling in his own decision that they're not going to allow those in foreclosure cases. And at that point, I was like, you know what? We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Okay, this is whatever the hell you want. So I agree with this guy completely that, you know, with, with Mr. James, I mean, you have to. That's what pushed me towards the unconventional. And, and, and now I think you don't have any choice. And going back to what we were talking about previously, just let me say this and then let everybody else jump in. I wanted to, you know, Kurt, as far as the oath goes, um, Greg had raised that issue with me at one point, and I actually was working today on a revocation of oath. Even though I don't have a written oath, I do have, you know, I do have personal knowledge, and I actually had a, 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 a situation similar to Dr. Graves's. Um, when I was sworn in, they didn't have my certificate in the uh, my license certificate in the envelope i had an empty envelope and i didn't know why and then i found out afterwards when they directed me backstage and i actually was sworn in by the chief justice of the illinois supreme court and three other justices because my mom just happened to be working at the time with the chief justice's wife and so she set it up as a as a nice you know uh, memory for my family so my mom and my dad and i you know were backstage and I put my hand on the Bible and raised my right hand and, and, and swore the oath. But I never got a, a written copy of that. But I feel like, you know, to really close the loop on that whole relationship and really establish myself the way that I need to be established for my own personal um, um, position, that I've got, to, I've got to execute a formal revocation of any oaths that they say might apply to me, even though that I have moved and successfully had my name stricken from the role of attorneys. So just a little segue there. Sorry, Greg. Yeah. Absolutely. That has integrity. Um, Corey, uh, let's come back to uh, what you and George. Again, uh, George, are you on the phone? Uh, press star 8 on your phone if you're Southern California or California. Um because there are two people on here that, if it's not George, you don't belong here. Unless, of course, you also are Josh Weigert, in which case, press star 8 and raise your hand so we know that you're there. Um, those are the only other parties in California that were invited to this call. So, uh, 
I'll wait for a moment. Uh, if Josh Schweigert or George Finder are on the call, please press star 8. And if you are not them, you're not and uh, you should not be on this call. All right. Well, nobody's responding. So thank you guys for letting me do that little gut check. We just have some trespassers here, and uh, I hope they know what the charges are since we've got all these lawyers on the call. Uh, and we actually trace their calls back to their uh, VOIP numbers and their telephone numbers. So that, uh, there will be paperwork involved. Um, stay on the call at your own risk. Sorry. Hang up with your Hang up. That's not a threat. It's a promise. Um, all right. Um, but Corey, you and George, yes, have, you you and George have been working on an element of a cause of action to assist homeowners and attorneys, um, and and actually consumers in general to a great degree, which involves having them add a cause of action, which you call what uh, credit damage. Um, That's right. And when and when uh, a foreclosing company or bank or whoever does a wrongful foreclosure, doesn't follow the proper procedures, even if they're just simply as guilty as a minor TILA violation, um, it can then ding a person's credit and cause them lots of damage. And lawyers and homeowners and consumers in general ought to know about this. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that and how you can work with lawyers to help um, not only make things right for the homeowner, but also provide for another venue for legal fees for the attorneys helping. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, like the other gentleman that was mentioning earlier, I, uh, I feel like I'm a fly on the wall and that I don't belong in this conversation because it's, it's clearly the one thing we all have in common is a commitment to make a difference. And, uh, and that's very crystal clear and to shift the, uh, to shift the tide and uh, that's pretty inspiring and so on, on the credit damage side so I, I'm honored to be you know in this conversation thank you for the invitation on the credit damage side what uh, for plus 20 years George has been in the in the world of uh, assisting attorneys with uh, areas where they may have a case but have but not previously considered credit damage as a result of the an added cause of action um, uh, and the impact of which uh, is compensable. And so we're all about being able to provide an additional resource using an approved process uh, whereby uh, we work with law firms. We have half a dozen law firms that are already using our tools to be able to help uh, view a client from a new perspective, that being an additional cause of action um, associated with um, what, what they're dealing with. For example, uh, oftentimes in a, in a case involving a collection, uh, alternative creditors will immediately jump ship. They'll immediately reduce opportunities available for a person to, to live. They'll have a credit card or a series of credit cards that are automatically cut overnight. Um, 
credit lines that they previously had are now gone, leaving that consumer in a substantially disadvantaged place. Uh, that's a cause of action. Uh, it's, it's a damage. Pardon me. It's a damage. Divorce cases are substantial areas where uh, damage can get caused. One party typically makes more than the other. Uh, and as a result, monies are taken away, leaving that uh, lesser income person with fewer financial advantages, uh, thereby creating a, um, a damage, a credit damage. Um, so there are numerous ways in which um, attorneys can use tools to help their clients, uh, their plaintiffs, uh, win additional fees uh, that are substantial. Some of the cases, uh, George's largest case was actually against TransUnion. Uh, and, uh, and it was um, uh, in excess, it was excess of uh, $13 million uh, as a judgment. Many of his cases that um, he testifies for being an expert witness uh, are relatively substantial and uh, and come out quite strong because the, his processes these processes are approved. Uh, I look at it, I look at it from the impact of um, how do we get this person back on solid ground again? How do we get this person? Uh, marketable to a lender if that's what they need. Uh, as the majority of the transactions that I'm now involved with are with uh, CPAs, financial planners, mortgage brokers, um, uh, enrolled agents, uh, etc. And so we put together a um, George. George uh, has been written up in numerous uh, magazines, legal magazines, and put together numerous legal uh, articles uh, regarding this. And uh, can certainly make those available to uh, to you, Greg, to share if that is of any interest to anybody. But the 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 big issue that is there for me is that once a homeowner or consumer uh, investor ends up losing something, gets a collection, a judgment, a charge off, a foreclosure, a short sale now listed. Now they they have all the other issues that you were dealing with before. There's a whole another set of issues, which is substantial damage that can oftentimes be seven years or more. Um, and uh, and so what we do is actually look to turn those around and resolve those issues um, uh, against creditors. And uh, so we actually end up working with and providing solutions to people so they can get back on track. Well, Dr. Locke, as a as a retired attorney, uh, how do you see that being useful to you or your colleagues? Well, you know what? Any time that I look at one of these cases, you look for a potential offensive um, position. And I've settled a number of cases where a client was getting sued, whether it was on a credit card, whether it was on a foreclosure, and saw violations like, not necessarily exactly what Corey's talking about, but, you know, violations of consumer protection laws, whatever they may be, and turn around and file suit in the federal court. You're, you're, it's really worthless in, in any court in Illinois um, other than the federal courts to go and pursue those kinds of claims because the judges just don't, they don't have the candle power in most cases. I mean, as, as a buddy of mine who's a, a partner in one of the top 
divorce firms in Illinois used to say to me, you know, these, these people in these circuit court judge seats, they're just glorified precinct captains. They pay $10,000 to the Democratic Party in the county to get their name on the ballot and get a favorable position. And then their job is to go out and, and have meetings and, and rallies and go door to door in order to drive voters to the booth to vote for them, knowing that there's some carryover that's going to go um, to other Democratic uh, um, office seekers. So you're not going to get the relief there generally. There are exceptions, obviously. I know really good judges who do take the time, but generally because their dockets are so chock full of cases, they don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time on claims. So you take it to the federal court and you bring a federal consumer protection claim and, and you add the Illinois consumer protection claims to the extent that they apply and you'd be amazed how quickly the uh, the bank or collector or servicer is going to want to sit down and talk about how can we how can we make that claim go away? What can we do in this other claim in order to um, just you know part ways here where you know we're probably both going to be pissed off equally, but you know we'll be out of each other's lives. So I think it's a great strategy, and and I think that you're dealing particularly in the case of collection actions and, and foreclosure mills with right. attorneys that are so incredibly overburdened um, and underprepared to argue anything of substance that they generally are going to make missteps on, on the procedural side um, and, and that, that can be construed as, as consumer protection violations. So there are always opportunities out there. Actually, I was going to say, Ken and Corey, um, would each of you like to take a, just a minute? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll run a stopwatch if I have to. Um, just a minute to address the question of this. If we go through all the trouble to get a recovery for a damage against a person's credit score, in order to allow them to go and take out another loan of some kind, which is what we're telling everybody, in effect, might be dubious at best. Um, what would you advise them to do, starting with Corey, in terms of reading the contract and knowing what they're getting into? Uh, very good. I would have a, an evaluation of their credit profile and run through our credit score damage finder program to determine if they've actually uh, been damaged from a credit perspective as the first thing to do. And what about entering into a new agreement with another so-called lender, which might not be a lender at all? Well, uh, that would be a question that uh, I, I would not answer at this point. Um, a lender that wouldn't be a lender at all. I don't understand that. Uh, because most of the people on the documents, as Ken and other folks have been realizing, sure. are not sure. are not lending anything, but rather are acting as a broker. And the four corners of the contract apparently have nothing to do with reality. Got it. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, very good. So, you know, I would just say that, 
if they're using the strategies that you're, you know, talking about today, um, that that would, you know, it would it would shift everything that they're doing. They would not be in the conventional, quote unquote, conventional. It's always been this way. World. Well, and there are a lot of resources. Right. Well, you know, there are men and women out there with a lot of gold, silver, and Federal Reserve notes that are collecting themselves together and throwing their money into a pool and offering hard money loans at reasonable interest rates where you would actually be dealing with the real creditor, the real lender. Great. Can I chime in on that? Just a quick answer to the text. I would think that even you can still participate in everything conventional as it exists. I think but the start is, and this is just from a research, I'm only talking about the research, is when you would do one of these loans or anything with a note, you would have to learn how to do the proper book entry, which is a UCC. You would have to learn how to do the proper fouling. So for whatever you feel entitled or whatever your interest is, you would have to be recording it up front. Now, that's just, I'm saying, where the research should go with it because the note can still run its course or it can run a course, but the thing is we have to do special deposits. I'm not saying that, that it's that simple, but we have to be we have to understand what's taking place with the security that we issue because there's a multiplicity of things that can be done, but nothing can be done unless you're keeping books. So what I'm trying to do is tickle you guys without coming out and giving you my own opinion to answer the possible question that there are in fact many different kinds of loans that can be executed. Some are automatically securitized. Some are automatically table-funded. Some are automatically leveraged against your own promissory note as the original funding. And some are actually using other people's money. And you've got to figure out which kind of loan agreement you're looking at. Don't you agree with that statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. What it comes down to is understanding the new economy. Um, yeah. The economy did a major shift in 1998 forward, uh, and the paradigms of old uh, to a traditional, any kind of traditional type of loan uh, is out the door. Um, we're into a new economy with all these different business models and all these different fluctuations and, and as you said, multiplicities uh, that are involved. Um, I think that we've got to educate ourselves on how this modern economy functions and the fact that you're not protected. Anything that you have a title to, you're not protected on it because that is going to be sold multiple times over. And the way the system is working right now, it's very easy for somebody to come in and default you. It's very easy for somebody to come in and, and claim that you're in default because there's no safeguards in place and there's no uh, um, uh, microscope being uh, uh, focused to these underlying business processes that none of us are aware of. Right, and so if I if I drove over to Rockford and I borrowed $1,000 from Kurt and we signed up a nice little piece of paper and let everybody know what happened and I defaulted on that, he could foreclose on me under black letter law, common law, and I wouldn't have a hope or a prayer of getting out of it. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. That's yep. different. That would be a man-to-man kind of a loan dealing with a real value. But see, the problem you have, though, with the court system is you have the court system that's running that, that uh, um, collectors and attorneys, bar attorneys, have, down, uh, have these administrative processes down to where they're taking away all, all a person's presumptions of, of, of innocence or guilt and automatically uh, presuming them on hypotheticals. 
So the problem is when you walk into court, you're going to lose anyhow. So to get into one of these loans to begin with, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't take a loan if my life depended on it at this point in time. I wouldn't right. have it. And that's, and that's the basis of that little parody that I recorded, right? I'll never sign a loan again. But it's, right. that, type, right. Right. But it's that type of loan. And, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, should we all not be more ad- well-advised and more aware that there are multiple types of loans that exist Absolutely. in the world today if you need, let's say if you were, you know, expanding your little restaurant or you wanted to do something productive for your job, your business, your home office, um, and you borrowed money from a family member or a friend or whatever, and it was a real direct funded loan, then it, it's totally outside of all of that bullshit speculation from Wall Street. It's a real deal. And I'm saying that there are, today, in America, thousands and thousands of people who who got lots of money in the uh, dot-com bubble, okay? And they're millionaires, and they're your next-door neighbor, and you don't even know it. You know, they just bought the right stock at the right time and sold it at the right time, and then they're now 50% cash and 50% gold buried in their backyard, and they're looking to lend money to make a profit on it. And it's theirs. It's only theirs. And they're not participating in the Wall Street game. There well, are... the, only issue, the only issue with those, Greg, is I don't think those people, you know, it's it's different the type of investing that the bank does and the type of return that they can get off of their investment and, and you know, giving you a type of, in, a hard, you know, what you would consider a normal investment. But at the end of the day, there's really no more such things as normal investments because even if you think that that's what you're involved in, either you or your lender one is getting short because the Treasury and the Federal Reserve Bank is investing your securities one way or another. They're going to play that game whether you play it or not. Well, and that's just on, that's just on one avenue. I mean, really what they're doing here, there's no banks involved. The banks are just merely passing letters of credit and cashing out letters of credit. What they're doing is they're taking that promissory note and they're pledging it up to the DTC. I mean, Christ, I, right. I, I, I read a story a couple months back that uh, taxi cab receipts are being securitized. Uh, everything. New York taxi everything. cab drivers. And everything so, so everything, everything has become a transaction now, and we don't know what that transaction if, is. If I can say, I don't want to sound real, I don't want to get off in the private and all of that, but it's really warrants, I mean, it's something really to look into what I was mentioning about having to be able to create a book entry on your own transactions. It even ties into what we were saying about there's an estate going on and what they're doing in the court. I've been just reading some case laws, and it seems to say that when, your instru- when, when, it, when, when the determination comes down to whether or not your instrument is a security, we know there's security. These, these other institutions are investing in them, but they say if you're keeping books, if you're doing some type of registration on these things, that now the circumstances change in commerce in general. So I'm just saying this is something to really look into because if you don't do anything, if you don't do any book entry, no special instructions, they are going to invest or securitize and monetize anything that you put your hand to. Right, right. Well, And, and what they've done is, and, and in the case of mortgage loans, what, they, what they've done is they failed to de-recognize the asset because there was, in fact, no cash that was advanced. Uh, there was a letter of credit, and there was a warehouse line of credit, and they pulled the asset off the off-books accounting. And, uh, and that's a violation, and this is, one, this is one area that we should focus on in terms of uh, foreclosure defense or offense or whatever way we come at this from, is from the accounting end. Uh, they vi- there's a FINRA FAS 
140-3, which uh, requires these transactions to be derecognized. And they did not derecognize the asset. And had they derecognized the asset, it would have shown that we were due a credit. And, uh, can, you, and, can you say that again? That you're saying uh, derecognition of asset. It's, it's derecognition of basis and assets. So what they've done is they've created a warehouse line of credit. Uh, say for instance, right. for Maryland, State Maryland gives uh, 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 countrywide a hundred million dollars line of credit. And when the loan go, when the, when the alleged loan goes through. Uh, they they cut the, uh, a wire is uh, um, uh, cut to the uh, that from the Fed to the uh, uh, credit line, and uh, that money is dispersed and it's dispersed into the pockets of the brokers. And what they've done is they've removed off the financial asset, which is the collateral value of the principal, and they've based, and they've posted it to uh, the DTC. They pledged it to the DTC. Uh, for securities and lending transactions, and no credit was given to the borrower. Uh, so what they right. did, they violated FINRA, uh, Financial uh, uh, Recording Accounting uh, Association. Uh, they failed to uh, abide by FINRA FAS 140-3, which requires that transactions of this nature, because it, was not a, because it was not a mortgage loan, because it was a transaction that, that contemplated a future return, uh, it, is a, it is a linked L-I-N-K-E-D transaction and is required to be derecognized, and they failed to do that. That's a huge, huge... Yes, uh, yes uh, it I'm is. Sure it sounds like it is. If we <laughs> yeah, start applying like it. Right. And, and then, then it's going to be a matter of how to train your attorney to understand that and write that in as a claim and, and, a, and a cause of action. Well, I, th I, think what I think what you're looking at here is totally retraining everybody. You've got to retra retrain everybody. For eight years, we've defended these things as if they are mortgage loans and if, they are, if there's actually a foreclosure and if there's actually a debt. So we've got to retrain ourselves to, uh, and the way that I talk to people and when I discuss this with people, is you literally have to look in the mirror and basically throw out everything you thought to be true because it's not, and then and then start over again, and that's really what we're looking at. Hey, can uh, I also say what you were mentioning about FINRA? Right. Doesn't that open up the opportunity to also other? X, X, X. hold that thought. Yes. I don't know if anybody else can hear it, but somebody is providing a lot of wind thunder on their microphone. And maybe and, me. Let me. And I'm just. Asking. Uh, press star six on your phone or on your or your regular mute to mute yourself, um, because it's very difficult for me to figure out amongst all of you who's causing the thunder. So uh, you can always do that. Thank you. Go ahead, Tex. And I was just I was just mentioning that those FINRA violations may also open up the door to some other uh, outside you know regulatory. Uh, relief for other regulatory agencies. Um, you know, if you just want to look at outside of court and making these complaints, you know, there's some other um, there's something to look into. I, I think. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of uh, courses of action that can be taken once we actually understand the business model. And this really is a business model of what was instituted. Um, you can't you can't take a consumer who is completely uh, uh, ignorant and unsophisticated. And put them into a into a sophisticated instrument 
to which they have no knowledge of because it's been intensely concealed from them what the actual transaction is and what underlies the actual transaction and expect a consumer to understand uh, uh, have any understanding of the transaction that they're in. And, and that's what we're looking at. We're, we're looking at, we, we literally have to redefine uh, what, the, what the economy really, how it really functions. And we can do that this now. That is powerful. That's pretty powerful. And we, and we can well, do, and I say, well, let me have one more point, and I'll, and I'll, then I'll, then I'll yield the floor for um, we, and this is, And I do believe that we stand at a pivotal point in history here because we've been getting screwed by the banks for centuries. But what we have, the one advantage that we have here is because they patented everything and because the model has been, I mean, it's been eight years reverse engineering this model. Uh, because we know how it operates now, we can nail them on everything that they've done. Why? Because they wrote it down in their own words and their own actions, and it's all post, posted at a public record of the United States Patents and Trademarks Office. All we got to do is start looking at that stuff and start deciphering it, look at the business model, and find the weak spots. Well, exactly. And, I agree. And, and I think that this goes to... It's almost like... To, go ahead, Bob. I think that this goes and ties in perfectly with an answer to Kurt's question of why are you here? Because to me, all right, this stuff, you talk about centuries. I mean, this stuff traces back to 1302 and probably before then. But, I mean, you know, in terms of, in terms of looking at, you know, concrete documents that, that I've been able to look at that, that show the different vehicles, special purpose vehicles that were created in our names and, and, and were ascribed uh, as our responsibilities, all right, by these people for various purposes, um, and 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 you know they they you know you can you can say nefarious, you can say, you know this was done for our own good, right, by Father Church, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it doesn't really matter, but I, I think that when you're looking at the unconventional, um, hand in hand with the conventional, and I know Kurt, you have a different, I, I know you have a different perspective. Um, in terms of in terms of the end game here, but to me, um, as long as we've got all these people who are getting dragged through the mud of these these court proceedings and 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 having and being taken advantage of adding insult to injury, it's bad enough that you're involved in an, in an illusory loan transaction, quote unquote loan transaction, but then on top of that. You know, you're also you're also getting your your dwelling taken away from you. Um, you know, I I I am striving for a way to clearly identify the different whether they're you know SETKV trusts or or whether they're you know corporations you know whatever they are um, and. And is it possible to take control of those things? And I think it is from Rich's experience uh, that you can, if you don't, you don't have to necessarily take control of the vehicles for an affirmative action against these collectors and the people that are trying to steal your credit, et cetera, et cetera. But at least you can take control of it and take control of a courthouse situation in a way that, I haven't seen 
in you know conventional or unconventional up until this point in time. And so I think there's really a key there. Kurt, what do you think about that? I had to unmute myself. <laughs> Were you yelling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mean like always? Hey, listen. First of all, I, I think it's a combination of things out there. I, I really enjoy the fact that there's so many people doing so many different things. It's hard. I mean, if everybody was doing the same thing, they, they'd figure something out. But but the fact that there's so many people finding out so much information is incredible. So I'm with you. I think at every direction is good. But I, I, if I may interject, I think that uh, to go into go into one length further, what Bob was saying, uh, not only is not only is a slap in the face uh, to the losing the dwelling and, and your credit and whatnot, this all comes down to the estate. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to accept it or not, this all comes down to a person's estate, and it comes down to a concept that goes back to the, um, the Civil War, Black Acre. And Black Acre is defined by Black's Law Dictionary, 8th edition, as being totally hypothetical, uh, being totally mythical, uh, but yet totally real and doubly more valuable in, rea- in, in real- reality. And so what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with all these underlying automated processes, which are hypotheticals, by the way, uh, because they, they, they anticipate a future return. Uh, so they're hypotheticals. And what they're doing is, uh, if you look up the concept, you study the concept of Black Acre, what it deals with is uh, where the, uh, the, all title and all estate passes to an unborn beneficiary. So basically what it, what's happening here is they're seizing a person's estate. They're killing off their kids, they're killing off their seed, and they're taking all. But the end game of this is is all these annuities that they've set up underneath our legal fiction. Uh, so right. I, so I do Black, Black, Black uh, Acre's Rain Man. Black Acre uh, is Rain Man. Okay, uh, yeah. okay, Black Acre, okay. I've never heard it referred to that, but yes, okay. Uh, okay. But, but so, so my idea is, one, one last point. My idea is, is that we should be taking these cases to probate. Maybe wrongful death is the case. Okay, Ken, that's enough. Kurt, finish up. You were, um, you were, you I know what Ken was saying, but, but actually it's not probate. I mean, the, the last thing that I ever did was negate Blackacre. I negated Blackacre. So I made it so Blackacre can't even exist. Because what they've done is it's that missing presumed dead position which throws it into probate, which throws it into administrative process. If you can eliminate that from the beginning as if it never existed, you actually become, you actually inherit what was rightfully yours from the beginning that, was, that went to Black Haver, that went to Rain Man, that went to the Lamb of God, whatever word you want to use. Well, Kurt, uh, I want to ask you something. Um, I actually want to ask uh, you and Bob Locke. Um, Dr. Graves mentioned that when they went to law school, and remember, he's he's like our dad's age, right? Um, they told him that there is no ownership of property, only title, and there's legal and equitable title. And But what the Dr. Graves didn't finish telling us was who the owner was within that that constant, you know, it's like you got to it, but you don't own it. You never talked about who the owner was. And in my research, heard, um, whoever's smashing things, please stop. Sorry, that was me. Um, from my recollection of my studies with regards to the origin of land ownership in America, going back to, you know, the Virginia Company 
all the way to today, is that true ownership was always vested in the owner by grant of whoever was the sovereign at the time. And and those actual true elements of ownership, which we call with allodial characteristics, where you have the right to dispose, the right to possess, and the right to enjoy the fruits, um, truly still existed all the way through the original grants issued by the United States government as the agent for those original issuances and that anybody who received an original land grant before the Civil War owns their land for here to kingdom come, period, and it's real ownership, and it's not just title. And that if you can extend your current possession of the land back through that original land grant and prove that there has been an unbroken chain of title, and claim to be an assign of that original land grant, that there's a possibility that you could actually claim to have all three elements of ownership and not just equitable and not just legal title. Anybody want to talk about that? I'll respond exactly to what you're saying. A few years back, I put a a PDF together called Clod of Dirt equals afterbirth. Now, I know people think this is all nutty stuff, but let me just read one paragraph in this. This is about ejectment, by the way, but it says, originally, the ownership of land in England could be passed to another only by delivering the actual possession of the land. The present owner passed title to another by picking up a clod of dirt on the land itself and handing it to the other person in front of others from the community. The ceremonial act from ancient times was called livery of season or delivery of possession. Instead of a clod, a twig, or a key to be handed over as a symbol of ownership, but only later was it permissible to deliver the symbol of ownership anywhere but on the land itself. As time passed and writing became more common, a written deed could symbolize delivery of ownership. Now here it is. The the left-behind DNA matter is the clod of dirt. It's the clod of dirt. And, and, And they're saying that it's abandoned, but it's not. It's actually delivery. So what's happening is your physical body, the surety for the title, the surety for everything, all financial instruments in the world is the, is the surety or the promise to pay. So the physical body of every man, woman, and child born within the, the birth certificated person system becomes the land, the land. The DNA is the land. It's not the land underfoot. It's the physical body of every man, woman, and child. That is is what real estate is truly all about. The banks are not laying claim to the earth. They're laying claim to the people. I've got to agree with him on that because I could see the pat- I, I, could, I could point out the patents on this. Uh, the the Sesca V trusts are set up, and they're set up under epigenetic DNA information. Okay, Ken and Kurt, um, but we all will have to accept this one thing that when those things were written, they didn't have a clue what the heck DNA was. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. No, listen, Greg, since time immemorial, every woman that ever gave birth to a child on planet Earth, there was always a second coming. There was always second birth material that came out. And from the ancient days, that second child, listen to me, that second misshapen, misshapen mess or mass of, of, of humanity, that was always buried ceremoniously as as a, a creature. 
a better web of being to them. So they would actually have a ceremony and bury it just like right. a dead baby. So that's, I, that's Rain Man. That's Rain I, Man. I just said and that's you mentioned that because I, I had this very same conversation with Gene Keating yesterday. I accept that. The only difference is only later did we start saying that there was DNA related to it. Back then, they just looked at it as a creature, the monster, whatever you want to call it. But later and, on, we figured out that and, there was And in Unum Sanctum in 1302, the Pope lays claim to all of that material. And since, and since I think it was April 1933, in, in answer to, I think, both these questions here in the United States, as a result of the banking emergency, all property is owned by the state. Yeah, Senate Report 42, 1935, it says all property rests in the state. Yeah, yeah. All property rests in the state. So the question is this. Does it rest in the state as an owner, or does it rest in the state as a trustee being held in abeyance for the original owner upon claim? Missing, presumed dead. I well, believe that's that all, it's... That brings up all kinds of questions then now that I have. Uh, and I think I... As far as presumed dead is concerned, and, 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 and the way our court systems operate, what about the age of majority? How does that play in? Seven, but seven years later, after the birth of the child, seven years later, no claim upon the body. There is no body. Habeas corpus has been out the window since 1863. They've known this stuff for a long time. Okay, so, bring, so, that forward, so bring that forward to the contract point of view then. If, if, we, if we have not claimed their age majority and we're, we're by and large dead, then, our, then how, do we have the, how do we even have the legal capacity to enter into an agreement? Agents, You've got to come forward and claim it. You're only okay. acting as agent, agent for that material. But the, also, also, also I, I, the answer is that you have to step forward and you have to make the claim. You have a claim, but you have to assert it. I you think have they, have they, they have a defective title, defective claim, until you go in and perfect it by, by bringing the body in. Okay. Right. Okay, so so let's okay. Let's talk about some unconventional means. Let's talk about uh, recording the certificate of live birth with the county, to, which is actually your death, which is actually a death pledge. But at the same time, though, it gives confirmation to your birth. Yeah, it's a death benefit, actually. That's yeah, why you execute. You, you're actually executing the character for 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 uh, to have access to a fund, which is a death benefit. The bene- the beneficiary is to a death benefit. So, Tex, how does this relate back to some of your research? It ties all in perfectly, and I would like to hear anyone's position because I've been kind of since when this first jumped into my mind, dealing with somebody about you know a year ago. I've been saying it, and I've never. I usually hear people just get silent on the thing. They never, nobody's ever challenged it. But I mentioned it earlier. I said the living trust, and one thing I want to mention: we spoke earlier about we talk about the estate, and that the individual living man is the surety. But what I, my research shows that the, there's securities being created off of the administrative estate. There's security. Yes. Now, the securities are backed by a pledge of assets, and those in the pledge of the assets is the sweat equity and, la- and the labor of the man. And they take, and, and you know, you can go into the social security and see how they do the actuarial tables 
to that for evaluation on those assets. But, but let, let me let me jump in on that. Let, let, me, let me finish. Let me finish, and then you can jump in on the end. So, so, so I was going to say all that to say when we look at the fact that it's the securities that they're actually after because that's what gets traded and that's what the value is. Then we go into the securities laws. We start finding out about these. Uh, these securities that don't have a proper title on them, the birth certificate being the main one, and then you can go into like the, you know, you can go into the securities laws, and they talk about different certificates of certificates that don't have a title on them. But all my research into securities, as well as the estate, everything to me points to that the solution would be the living trust, and it's how you record the living trust that will address all of those things that deal with competency, the age and, and, and majority. That, and that's what they're after. They're after, at the end of the day, they're after the life annuities that they've set up underneath yes. our name. And remember, the living man goes to work on Monday, but the order gets paid on Friday. The living man's energy is, is what energizes the system, but at the end of Friday, when he collects his check, it says pay to the order of Curtis Kallenbach. Curtis Kallenbach is never being paid. The order, capital O, is getting paid. So, 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 so who's oh, I've got a question here, guys. Mm-hmm. Let us make a leap of faith and a presumption that the dialogue of the last 15 minutes is true and correct. Now, what mechanical tools are available for our friends that are listening so that they can take these wonderful little insights and bits of research and put them to work right now to make their life better? A trust and an agency cannot coexist in the same space. So I say investigate trust technology, specifically your living trust. That's what I would offer. Okay. Next. Uh, um, here, remember that when when the second arrival of the of the afterbirth, when it arrives, it is born alive. It's a legal uh, legal entity. It's it even is called born alive, but it's it's born dying. It's it doesn't have any way to self sustain. So that material is born a decedent. So it dies. When it dies, and it will die, it dies in test state without a will, which is why all of Curtis Richard Kallenbach's assets go into a trust because that Rain Man account is established on that material, not on the firstborn son. So, so here's the thing is what I did is I wrote an inter vivos testament that negates the second coming. It negates that second character so it cannot exist. And inter vivos means living to living. So, so I'm not dead. I've never was dead. I'm not missing. I never was missing. So an inter vivos testament is exactly what's necessary to prove life. And Seneca 1666 says, when a man proves life, he's revested with his title. There's no living man or woman in America. Now, that's an idea you mentioned that. Now, I want to go to contracts for a minute, if I may. There's, con- there's underlying contracts. There's a contract between uh, own it. I'm muting you, Ken. No. It's not your turn. Bob. Would you please tell us what you think about that? I think I think it's essentially what you're doing is collapsing the trust, and and it's what has to be done. You, you, you're basically you're basically taking their sandbox away, and and when you do that, like somebody alluded to earlier, there is no defendant in the case. 
And if they don't have a defendant, then there's nobody for the court to assert jurisdiction over, and there's nobody to collect in, in any remedy for the alleged claim. And so you see what happened with, um, with Kurt's buddy, Rich. It, essentially, the case goes back to the beginning, nunk pro tunk, and, and the case has to go away because all you have is a plaintiff there waving around this illusory claim and the court doesn't have anything to deal to 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 apply a remedy to okay uh curry you've been uh patient and kind and listening yes. what do you know uh, you know what i am actually in in the middle of something uh, quite technical so i'm sorry i have no response to that question Okay, just wanted to make sure you had a shot. All right, um, gentlemen, uh, we have, I'd like to just read off a list of some of the subtopics that we had poised as possible things to discuss, one at a time. And if you hear something that you want to talk about, just shout out, I want to talk about that, or... Stop there. Let's talk about, here we go, difficult judges. I'm going to raise my hand. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, this is text. Uh, I, I, it, that's what I put on my list is the discussion that I wanted to talk about. I think we mentioned it. Um, it goes all back to leverage. So we were just talking about the living trust, but if you found yourself in a situation where you were a trustee or you were whatever party operating in a living trust, then you have to know something about the trust law and who the judge is in relation to that trust. But all I was going to say is I don't think these judges are as much of a threat when you know what rules and regulations put them in their seats. So there's their code of ethics, insurance policies, and all of those things. So, okay, the next, next thing that we skipped over is Teela rescission, a year after the SCOTUS decision in Jezinoski and Countrywide. What good is it? I think that maybe maybe the point that it could serve is to is to go to what Bob was saying about eviscerating uh, 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 the trust. I think it's I think uh, that it was very vague in, in its ruling, and nobody really knows how to apply it. And I think the way that maybe to apply it is in the sense of uh, dissolving the trust. All right, Bob? Ken, you're involved. You're Ken, you're involved in some mass action stuff right now. When should uh, somebody decide to go alone or use a class or mass action case? How do you figure that out? Well, I'm involved in I, I'm involved in uh, working with a bunch of attorneys to get a mass joinder going. But I'm also in, I'm also involved in my own case, which is an appeal right now. Um, and I just filed an ex, a third extension to to uh, respond uh, uh, to HSBC's response. Uh, and at this point in time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to file uh, a, uh, for subject matter jurisdiction, and I'm going to go off the premise of what we're talking about with these trusts and with these administrative processes that are that are that are hidden, and and and, and try to drum up some new, uh, uh, I guess, alternative methods at addressing these things, at addressing them to the actual uh, uh, facts that underlies. Would anybody like to discuss forged instruments? And mystery mystery endorsements. Uh, in other words, beating by cheating and getting away with it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at that that point, all right, out to its logical extension, based upon the conversation that we've just had over the last 15 minutes, essentially every single one of these things is forged and fraudulent. And and the question is, you know, how many layers do you want to dig beneath the surface? to to talk about where the fraud and forgeries are and i think this goes back to the to the previous point dealing with rescission too greg you know so what about this stuff my feeling is that we're very very close right now especially with the work that 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 kurt and his people have done um and the work that that ken's been doing um and a little bit that i know about the things that tex has done um and now adding to that the additional value that Corey brings to the table, I think that we're very, very close to a, a tipping point here. And to me, okay, the issue is you come up with a, uh, you, come, you encounter a difficult judge, all right, and he may just be having a bad day, he may be a pompous ass, you know, and completely arrogant, he's been there too long, whatever. At the end of the day, my goal is to give him, is to give him two things. I want to show him the truth so that he's confronted with it and has to come to terms with it because this guy's, this guy's pension is invested in all of the stuff that he's ruling upon, whether he knows it or not. Um, and, and so he's self-interested and should be made aware of that. Secondly, all right, I want to, I want to make him aware of the facts that you know, dealing with things like Rain Man, dealing with these different trusts and special purpose vehicles that are out there, and that these things are, are now, the people are being educated as to these things, and that the court is going to have to deal with them. And, and then I want to give him a conventional solution that will, because this guy that's sitting in, in hearing these cases in the first instance, okay, this is not learned hand. This is not John Marshall, okay? These guys are looking at what is the most, they're risk averse. What is the, what is, what can I do so that I don't end up looking like a schmuck to my superiors and my peers, all right? And so that's where I want to hand him at a minimum after confronting him with the reality, I want to hand him a conventional hook to hang his hat on. And to me, the Jasinoski rescission is a is an incredible tool along those lines. It's it's like okay, you're 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 throwing reality at me, and you know smoke's coming out of my ears because I I can't believe either, either one I can't believe what you're saying, and I'm going to have to go verify it, or two I can't believe you figured it out. Um, but you know what? Let's just talk about this thing over here, and why don't you go away? Because we don't want the rest of the peasants to figure this stuff out. All right. Um, would anybody like to deal with the question about admissions? Learning how to keep your mouth shut and instead answering questions with questions and not agreeing to things that you don't know anything about. I, I think that that's probably the biggest and this goes into one of the other things that we were going to talk about, and I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to kind of preempt you there, Greg. Um, admissions and presumptions. You know, people. One of the biggest mistakes that people make, and sometimes they do it on their own um, when they really don't understand the environment that they're walking into, and sometimes they do it with the help of of the different um, legal aid resources that are made available to them because, you know, when somebody comes in pro se or pro fur, 
the judge will automatically say, you know, there are resources available. If you don't want to hire an attorney, you can go down to the 11th floor in the Daly Center in Cook County, for example, and talk to the legal aid people down there and they'll help you fill out an answer. Well, those people help you fill out an answer and you, you, you are, if you follow their guidelines, all right, you're making admissions and you're admitting to implicit presumptions in the complaint form itself, all right, that if you knew that they were there and that's what you were doing, you never would have done it, all right? It, it, things like you're acknowledging that there's been a default. You're acknowledging that, you know, somebody has a superior claim, going back to, you know, Kurt's paramount claim type um, issues. Somebody has a superior claim to the claim that you're making on the property. You're, you're, you're admitting that, <clears throat> You know uh, that you know the prima facie evidence that the bank has introduced is 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 valid, all right, or is real. Um, those kind of things, and and you know when you do that, as opposed to just going up and saying, you know, basically, you know, screw you, who are you, and why are you here, and why are you bothering me? Which is kind of alludes to what what Dr. Graves was talking about previously, which is the tactic that he takes. Um, who are you and why are you here and why are you bothering me? It, it, you have to challenge every one of those admissions, every one of those assumptions. Otherwise, the court is going to automatically presume that you had knowledge of those things and that you knowingly and willingly accepted um, those positions. So they're incredibly dangerous and they're numerous. They're not real complicated and they're easy to find out about. Anybody, I don't care if you're, uh, you know, a laborer, I don't care, you know, if you dig ditches, you know, <clears throat> you've got the mental capacity to be able to pick this stuff up without having to go to law school. Um, and obviously, you know, do, doing something like, like, you know, Dr. Graves' course is something that would, if you have no knowledge of any of this stuff, would, would help if you're determined to do this stuff or if, you know, by circumstances you don't have the ability to be able to, to find a knowledgeable attorney to help you walk through these things with the conventional things while you pursue the unconventional. Could you go so far as to uh, challenge the presumption that the attorney standing in the room actually is authorized to represent an alleged plaintiff? Absolutely. And, and little by little over time in courts around the country, we're seeing, and I say little by little, emphasis on little. Um, but we're seeing people making that challenge, and I think that challenge has to be made routinely because, I mean, you know, you look at the, you, you, when you talked about the, you talked about the um, fictitious lenders and things like that, right, you know, you've got servicers and subservicers, and you've got people claiming to be orig original lenders who are, are just, you know, somebody that had a warehouse line of credit or table funded something as a broker, right, and, and you've got all these different layers that are there. And so, you know, who hired the attorney? And the, the response from, from the, the, the foreclosure mill law firm will always be, you know, that's uh, attorney-client privilege. Well, I don't, I don't care what your agreement was. I want to know who your agreement was with. And you can't tell me that, you know, I need, to, I, I need to be able to face my accusers. Now, it's not a criminal matter, so you're not talking about, you know, some kind of constitutional thing. But we're talking about we're dealing with, we're dealing with a, a real property issue and we're dealing with, um, a, you know, a suit in chancery. So, you know, I need to know who I'm fighting against. 
And and so in that sense, you should have the right to know who do you represent and, you know, do you actually, do they even, and, and I used to do this routinely, you know, d- does, does the plaintiff even know that you're here on this case? And, and, you know, you'd be amazed at some, of the, at some of the responses that I would get from attorneys on the other side. I mean, seriously, they would, they would just completely freak out and try to change the subject to anything in the world. And they'd, you know, guffaw and humph and, you know, and, and, and they, they'd push to get away from the question as far as they possibly could. All righty. Um... Address expert witnesses and how they can change the face of a controversy. All right. From a conventional perspective, while you're working on your non-conventional strategies and, 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 and documents, et cetera, all right, I, I alluded to this before. The two biggest things as I read appellate decisions around the country, the two glaring omissions that, that just about – the overwhelming majority of foreclosure defense cases um, deal with. The, the appellate court laments the fact that the homeowner came and they appealed the, the summary judgment or, or, or the judgment. And when you appeal, all right, it is your obligation to have the record prepared on appeal. If you haven't hired a court reporter, for all major hearings on motions, on discovery, on summary judgment, um, then all they have is the judge's scribbles. And because generally, you know, the written order is something that's put put together by the foreclosure mill. All right. Those are the only things that they have. And then any, anything else that you, that you put in contesting it. All right. That goes to the second thing. They, in addition to not having a transcription, of the arguments that took place and the matters that were raised to determine whether or not the judge um, was presented with opposing facts and evidence that should have influenced his ruling in your favor, those facts and evidence have to come in by way, in Illinois especially, um, by way of affidavit. You don't go to a formal trial. There are no jury trials. This is all done on paper. All right, so if you don't have an affidavit, an affidavit from yourself with respect to the homeowner, with respect to whatever facts, facts, not opinions, facts that they have um, uh, to present to the court, contrary to what the bank is, is, is presenting, and then from an expert who can come in and look at things like the documentation that the bank presents and and tear holes in it. I mean, I, I just did an affidavit recently, and there was a there was an employee of a servicer who filed an affidavit, and it was it was at least third level hearsay. Okay, this witness was testifying, worked for a subservicer, and was testifying to a previous subservicer, and then the previous servicer before that, and then Fannie Mae was testifying to the truth and credibility of the business records of these companies that this person had absolutely no knowledge of and was testifying from firsthand knowledge of. All right. If you don't have somebody that can go up and and challenge that, all right, and then offer competing factual evidence to those presentations, 
then you're done. And, and what I've been trying to do is to provide a counterpoint to the professional expert witnesses that are out there doing foreclosure defense around the country, most of whom are presenting affidavits and, 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 and helping all the way through the cases. And, you know, they're charging anywhere from, you know, ten to $20,000, could be $30,000. I think that you can have a, an, an expert affidavit from somebody like me that, you know, you could get for $1,500. And that's presuming that you've got access to the full case file and, and, and you don't have to spend all kinds of time scurrying around to pull together all the records and things like that. And I think that it would be some of the best money that a homeowner could spend because at that point then the court has two things that it is crying for, and that is give me contrary evidence on the record of facts that, that the judge had to weigh upon. And if the judge ignored those facts then they at that point then you get into abuse of discretion arguments as to whether or not the judge ignored facts and and accepted facts at that point you push the judge in, in terms of in terms of leverage issues to a point where they are looking at it and saying you know what all my buddies are going to look at me and they're going to think I'm an idiot if I completely ignore this stuff and and it pushes the bar up for the bank and then at that point you get to you know, serious talks about about different kinds of settlement, and that may be getting a favorable loan modification until you can get all of your non-conventional things in place. Um, there's a lot of different things that you can get out of that that, that could be con considered in this environment today as a win. And understand when I say that, because I know that people are going to raise an eyebrow at that. You know, I, I when I was practicing every case that I ever went after, I, I wanted to win. I, you know, I, I, I knew that the bank was absolutely full of crap. And, and I knew that the judge just wanted to hand them the keys. And I wanted to win. And people say, well, you're giving somebody a free house. Well, no, I mean, it was their credit in the first place that got the house. So don't, you know, don't even walk down that path, because I understand more. I, I, I forgot more about the way that the banking system is set up and works this morning taking a leak when I got out of bed than the people who are making that argument against me are ever going to know, okay? And I don't mean to be crass, but I mean, really, I, I get really sick about listening to people spout that crap because if you understood the way that the banking system is set up and the way that you're being taken advantage of, there would be wholesale revolutions in the streets. Right. So, in, my, in, in, in our case, uh, I went in there from the very beginning with the affirmative defense that this is not a valid contract. And I stuck to that. And uh, I think one of the uh, mistakes that uh, most pro se's make in appeal is they try to, and I, you can elaborate on this, Bob, is that uh, they try to re-argue the merits of the case instead of arguing procedure. Uh, and, and, and in our case, I argued the fact that uh, uh, HSBC acted, uh, 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 conducted fraud on the court by uh, uh, putting in false admissions that were never deemed as facts because they were never received, to never even make admissions. And that's my yeah. appeal. Um, and I think that I got a very good chance of winning that appeal based on that and getting sent back down to the lower court because I did argue all the way through that this was not a, that this was a fraudulent a contract. It was a licensing agreement, uh, and not uh, uh, um, I, I did not uh, affirm the debt or anything. I clearly said there's no debt. This is no contract here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Greg, Greg, what do I always say? What do I always say about procedure, Greg? Bob. Uh, Procedure kills. 
Procedure and, uh, and at this point in time, I'm going to have the remaining three of you take three minutes, and I will time you and mute you at the end of three minutes if you run on. So please give me your closing thoughts on this conversation, and we're going to start with Tex. Tex, please go ahead. It was a pleasure to be here. Um, I know most of the, the, the gentlemen that are on the call, not all of them, but I know most of them, and they probably don't know, but I, I'm familiar with a lot of their work. I've learned a lot from the call, and um, the, one, the, the one thing I want to leave everybody that listens to this call with, and mine is going to be short in three minutes, is the one thing that has that, that has worked for me better than anything else is with all the different angles you can choose to go is standing on one that is absolutely true. And the only and the thing that I've always stood on was the fact that you never gave me a loan in the first place because I felt that if I, if I fall off of any other block, that part I know is true. So I'm going to start there and I'm going to build my knowledge around that fact, around that truth, so that I can, you know, I'd rather be with my my back in a corner fighting 10 people than have them all around me. So, you know, that, that's what I would say. Stick to the truth. Yeah. Bob? I, I, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. well said, Tex. And, and, and I'm not going to use three minutes either, Greg. I mean, I, I, think that we've, I think we've had an excellent discussion here, and I really appreciate being invited into it. I, I, I respect um, I respect the the perspectives of everybody that's been on the call, and I think that there's been a lot of very, very valuable discussion that's taken place during the course of this thing that will help advance people's knowledge both with respect to conventional strategies and issues and unconventional strategies and issues, and I'm a strong proponent that that is the future of all these battles that we're involved in. And, and if people can can take advantage of the knowledge of of the people that are out there developing these these tools and these technologies, um, I think that we're going to see a whole sea change in the foreclosure world, um, as well as all other collection actions and tax actions, et cetera, et cetera. And Ken, to you. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I've learned a lot as well. Um, I would certainly like to. Uh, I, I've never spoken with, uh, outside of Bob and yourself, I haven't spoken with any of the other guests and would love to continue these conversations because I think we're, we're, I think we're making headway. I, I agree with Bob. I think that um, uh, as, these, as these models, as these theories, as these uh, processes evolve, I think they're going to marry together, and I think that we can come at this from so many different angles uh, that uh, um, uh, we are going to see a marketable change. Uh, in the way foreclosures are conducted, and the way that every uh, the way the court procedures are uh, conducted. All right. Well, gentlemen, wish me luck editing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be up all night. <laughs> um. Yeah. Lovely. That was a great conversation. It was very good. And uh, I want to tell you, thank you very much. Um. I won't go through the formality stuff because I can always dub that in. Uh, and I will. But um, And Tex, once again, we're not rubbing your nose in it, but thank you for doing your best. Uh, for the, yeah. the, the uninvited third-party interveners. You know? <laughs> My bad. Yeah. I, I, hey, listen, Tex. I'm from I'm from Rogers Park, North Side of Chicago. I'm going to rub your nose in it whenever I get a chance, just for fun. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. Well, at least they were showing how dedicated, uh, you know, supporters they are of the organization. So, yeah. yeah there were a lot of people that were coming on. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaks <laughs> well for thing. you, Tex. Ken and Bob, I think that you should invite Tex to your party more often instead of just going with a twosome. I think you could have a threesome. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to marry her, man. I think we should discuss. I think we should continue these discussions offline between the three and Kurt as well, uh, and uh, um, uh, continue these conversations because I think we're kind of working in the right direction. Absolutely, I, that would be a good idea. Do you guys all have each other's email addresses now? Uh, uh, I don't. Um, I don't unless, have to unless they were included in. Well, if they were included in the email, yeah, I guess I do. If you look, yeah. if you look on the last email I sent out. Um, it has all of the people that said they would show up and their email addresses. Oh, okay, fantastic. Great. That's good. All good. right. So fantastic. you guys tag up and uh, have at it and have a blast. Greg, oh, good thank job. you very Good much. job, Greg. Thank you for bringing everybody together. Appreciate it. Thank you all. It was a pleasure. All right, take care, Tex. Nice to meet you. Hi, right, nice meeting you, Tex, as well. And Bob, I'll talk to you later. And Greg, thank you. Yeah, Ken, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Give me a ring. You got right. it. Take care. All righty. Bye bye. Thank you, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S. based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.